This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 536 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Dave Prochera Best. Now, Dave is a fellow Brit, spending much of his career as a helicopter pilot, initially in the RAF, both in combat and search and rescue, and ultimately working in Canada, again with search and rescue and then EMS transport. So we discuss a host of topics, from some of the near misses he experienced, working with Prince William, his physical and mental health journey, and so much more. Before we get to that very powerful conversation, as I say every week, Please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dave Prochera Best. Enjoy. So Dave, I want to start by saying thank you so much for firstly reaching out and secondly coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. No, thank you, James. It's my pleasure. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? You find me in the beautiful village of Cumberland on Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. Beautiful. Now, for some people, they're going to realize that your accent doesn't sound like it's Canadian. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. I don't know what you mean, James. I sound perfectly Canadian. <laughs> um, I was born in a town called Grimsby in northeast England. Uh, I was uh, raised by my grandparents, uh, although I saw my mother most days. Um, and my grandfather uh, escaped from Poland during the Second World War, uh, joined the RAF uh, as a tail gunner, um, survived 96 missions uh, as a tail gunner, which was pretty phenomenal. Um, and I guess really that's where my RAF link comes from, from an early age, uh, spending time with him. And um, I'd say not so much the stories because people of that generation were pretty tight-lipped about what they did. Um, he told me more as, as time went on, as I got a bit older. Um, but I think, again, as an immigrant, as someone who had escaped to England, he felt it was very important to serve his new adopted country, um, much like the route you've taken and I've taken and, and several of your guests have taken. Uh, so that was kind of uh, where my interest in the RAF came from. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, let's just stick on that for a moment. So when, what year did he actually escape Poland? Was it still during World War II that he was serving them? It was absolutely, it was right at the fall of um, Poland as Germany invaded. He, he was already a member of the, the Polish Air Force at that point. He'd lied about his age to, to get in. 
Um, and basically him and his friends, uh, he said they got back to one of their bases. They were getting attacked by the Germans. So they collected, apparently they had um, gold, solid gold stopwatches in the back of the aircraft. So they ran around under fire, grabbed as many gold uh, watches as they could for, for trade um, and, and ran. And um, like basically they made their way to uh, the Lebanon, uh, from the Lebanon to France and from France to, to England. So it was quite the quite the remarkable journey, really. That's amazing. So I had a guest recently who was uh, Polish and then um, was a refugee, found himself in the U.S. and ultimately is a Navy SEAL. And his perspective on socialism, which I'm assuming was obviously post World War II, um, with the Russian influence, um, you know, was was incredible. You know, and the oppression that he endured as a, a young man there and a political prisoner. What were some of the the stories, if any, that you heard from your grandfather with the Polish side versus the UK? Um, yeah, I mean, that, I, I listened to that interview. It's very interesting. And uh, when I was growing up, we used to go back to Poland every couple of years. So I saw it behind the Iron Curtain and then uh, briefly after the Iron Curtain and, and, and quite the difference there. Um, but certainly from my grandfather, he lost track of his family for... I want to say at least a decade or more after the uh, the communists took Poland, they were kind of thinking everything would be good, um, everything sorted out, and they'd finish fighting and uh, fighting the Germans and be able to return home. And of course, that was never the case. Uh, so it took him several years before he could even go back and see what was left of his family um, at that point. So um, quite a big deal, um, and certainly. Speaking to the family members, though, those stories that your guest was saying about the uh, the queuing for food, uh, the general scarcity of everything for everyday life, um, those came through even during the the brief visits that we were having. You know, when I'm six or eight or ten, even I could tell that uh, that things weren't right in that country. Um, you know, you've got um, armed guards posted all over the place. Everyone's very suspicious of each other. Um, no one's allowed to speak out. It's it's a very strange atmosphere coming from England. Now, what did he end up doing? Did he stay in as a career uh, pilot in the end? No, he he got to the end, James, and uh, he he left and became a motor mechanic. And I just remember him working super long hours all the time but uh, i think when you get right into it you can understand there was there was probably a lot going on in his head post-war it's a traumatic time um and and sat in that uh, tail gunner position on the lancaster it was pretty exposed night after night you know i, I looked in his logbook he had he had uh, 15 hours logged for one raid to italy it's it's a hell of a long time just staring out the back, you know, waiting waiting for the hammer to fall. So yeah, pretty impressive. That's amazing. Well, it kind of reminds me of uh, one of the chapters that I wrote about in the book with the elderly, you know, and us having no idea of who these men and women are. I'm not going to say were are, and you know the service that they gave. And I'm sure as your grandfather was probably towards the end of his life, he was viewed as an old person versus this Polish immigrant that came and fought for the uk against the nazi nazi regime absolutely yeah it's it's quite incredible something else has struck me later on when i was in canada and we had uh, a group of the surviving group of canadian typhoon pilots uh, came in and uh, typhoon was a fighter bomber in the second world war so so these guys had, had been over d-day normandy uh the battle of the bulge all these 
super impressive battles. And I was struck that I asked each one of them, you know, kind of like, oh, so did you keep flying? And all but one never touched an aircraft again. They just went into normal life as teachers, engineers, whatever it was. And they, they'd flown less time than I'd flown in training and fought an entire war in that experience. And, and even though they, they transitioned back to civilian life, it had affected them deeply enough that 60 years later, they're still traveling museums as a group and meeting up to talk about those experiences that really could only have lasted a handful of months. Um, just the way that they, that they uh, operated, they were literally taking off, flying five minutes away, expending all their ordnance, flying five minutes back. That's one. Okay, reload everything. Go do it again. That's two. And they just had to do 100 before they had to, to tag out. And it's just phenomenal. Like They saw so much in such a short period of time. Yeah, well, I heard that from the Vietnam era too. I had a uh, major uh, James Capers on the show, and the he, I mean, his whole deployment just in Vietnam fills an entire book. And I think, if if I'm not mistaken, it was only actually about five months before he was very, very badly wounded. But what he and his men did in those four five months were, you know, could span an entire military career for a lot yeah. of people. Absolutely, yeah, it's uh, it, it's pretty phenomenal. Right. Well, speaking of trauma, as you're aware, you know, I, I think a lot of us that go into the uniform professions have an element that I think guides us for, for a couple of reasons. You mentioned about being raised by your grandmother, um, you know, grandparents, um, and your mother worked and you saw her. Um, what was that dynamic? Did you have an absent father prior to really being of a, you know, an age that you were aware of him? Yeah. I, I, I've never met my actual father. Um, and uh, at first, it didn't bother me at all. Then I went through a period of when I got much older of, you know, do I want this guy is? And then I realized that actually, no, I didn't give a shit anymore. Like whatever I was on my merits, not not someone else's. Um, so I didn't think of it as odd. But now when I look back on it, yes. So um, my mum eventually did marry and um I just didn't really get on with my stepdad. Not really his fault. It was just we didn't bond until later in life. So um, I guess growing up, as a result, I did have a father figure in my granddad, but I didn't. Even then, I didn't see him that much, just because he would work these long hours all the time. I guess dealing with whatever he felt he needed to deal with. So it wasn't an unpleasant situation. I certainly wasn't like getting abused uh, in any way, shape or form, but it's not the normal family unit that I would think, oh yeah, I grew up in a normal family. It, it is different, obviously. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. I mean, you get different um, gendered couples who raise children, but I don't think it's the gender of the parent that's you know the issue. It's the fact that when you have young men or young women and one isn't there, then what I've seen over and over again, whether consciously or subconsciously, there's that feeling of what is it about me that made my parent not want to stay? You know, and I think that's a very, very, you know, damaging element if it's not addressed and discussed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I can hear that. I mean, surprisingly, I wasn't the only kid at my school that was getting raised by his grandparents. So there was an element of normality to it because there's other people like in the same situation. 
Um, but yeah, there there is that going on too. You do go through that when you find when the penny finally drops and you're like, oh, hang on, no, I am in a different situation. This is unusual. Um, so yeah, it's something I never paid much mind to, but uh, you got me thinking with your podcast because it's the opening question. I'm like, oh. What do I say? But. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, it's something that I wasn't thinking about early episodes. I wasn't at all. And there's a guy, Jake Clark, who started Save a Warrior, who his whole um, process, it doesn't matter what you've seen and done as a responder or as, as a soldier. It's more about those first few years. What is that foundation that's built on? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. innocently asking those opening questions when you're just, just you know, not afraid to to be more direct people are like yeah this happened this happened this happened you're like oh my god there's so many of us that have had you know i mean and the trauma can look completely different from yep. as i say a boy soldier in sierra leone to a middle child it doesn't you know trauma is trauma but yeah you know having these discussions and hearing seals and pilots and firefighters talking about that it really i think opens up that one area that is just never discussed when it comes to mental health especially in men mm-hmm no, it's uh, it's an interesting take, James, for sure, because it's just the kind of thing that, you know, people ask me about my childhood and you just say, oh, you know, I don't remember much. It was it was normal. It's perfectly normal. And then you you actually challenge that view and go, well, was it actually? You know, there, there was a few things there that were, were, were different to that, you know, um, Hollywood version of, of normal, you know, where all the families are getting on great and everything's just so. It's it's such an unrealistic ideal, along with so many other unrealistic ideals, I guess, that we put out there. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. So I would say, oh no, it's perfectly normal. But um, no, there was elements that were definitely uh, different. You know, um, not having a father and all that kind of stuff. You get bullied at school and and all that goes on. So although home life was fine you still find yourself as a bit of an outcast at times at, at school because what the school kids love people who are different why so they can pick on them you know like so anything that's slightly out of the ordinary puts you in that firing line um so i don't feel like i had a particularly rough or unhappy childhood but slightly different i guess yeah yeah well i think that the two words that i i like that that's kind of not explain, but to apply to that situation is there are reasons and there are excuses. And just because, you know, you, you've dealt with it well doesn't mean it's still not a real thing in your life. You know, mm-hmm. and I think an excuse is that kind of victim mentality. But, sure. you know, a lot of us disregard our trauma and, you know, you have to own that. You have to process it and understand, yeah, that is part of my timeline. And, you know, I can grow from it or I can let it crush me. But either way, it did happen. I can't deny that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. So with your childhood age, what kind of sports were you playing back then? <laughs> Bugger all, James. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I should mention I eventually got a half-sister. She was the more sporty one at school. But um, like I was about as average a kid as you could expect, really. Um, like average height, average weight, average looks, average ability – um, I wasn't big into team sports. I quite enjoyed rugby for the brief period that our school played it, but we never really got going on that. Um, and I didn't do a lot until I got into karate mid-teens. Um, and that kind of started to give me more focus and discipline for uh, doing 
some kind of activity that wasn't just sitting on my ass, frankly. Um, so that was good. Um, and then everything else kind of I discovered later in life, kind of mid-20s, that the, the pivotal point for me and exercise was uh, surfing. Once I actually got into surfing, that gave me a reason to train and stay fit away from it and that kind of got me down a more healthy path because I don't think I was particularly active or um, I guess I was outdoorsy but I wasn't particularly active um, like going back to uh, to, to childhood my uh, I guess it would have been my great granddad was killed right outside of our house before I was born um, on his push bike coming home from work so as a result push bikes were not particularly liked in our family so when I kind of like shuffled down the garden path and rammed into the <clears throat> the garage wall on my bike and went I never want to ride it again everyone was like oh, okay cool no big deal so uh I couldn't ride a bike I could fly a helicopter before I could ride a bike um so <laughs> that's interesting so, yeah so try try to keep up with kids uh you know when everyone's on bikes and you're not uh, makes life a little bit tricky so you kind of lose interest in that but um yeah that was that that's my dirty secret ed ed for the world <laughs> so when how old were you when you found surfing oh like 24 25 and where like, really late britain is not yeah. known for its you know tropical uh, surf yeah. shores <laughs> no i mean grimsby's got some beautiful brown waves if you if you like doing that um I went on uh, a bit of a holiday to um, uh, Indonesia, basically. Uh, my first year in the Air Force with a, a good friend called Scoff. And uh, we went traveling around the islands for a few weeks. And um, we borrowed bodyboards, had a near-death experience on a bodyboard where this huge wave kind of chewed me up. And I just remember thinking, never again. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to paddle in and the uh, the Balinese lifeguards came up in their little boat and I'm getting ripped down the beach. You know, I'm, I'm nearly out of air and they're going, Hey you, Hey you swim in, swim in. I'm like, I am trying. <laughs> <laughs> and they just followed me for like five minutes as I'm kicking in effectively trying to get in. Eventually they'll hold me into the boat and, and, and drop me off. Well, two weeks later we're trying surfing. I've no idea why, but um something about it just really appealed and I, I, I kept it up when I came back to the UK. Um, I was in Northern Ireland at the time. So uh, we'd, we'd surf off the Northern Irish coast and then uh, kind of back in Cornwall uh, when I was home. And um, that, that started an interest that led to other things, snowboarding, mountain biking, all these other things kind of followed. But really that was a, a pivotal moment for me for, for getting active, I would say. Brilliant. Yeah. I had an Irish firefighter on the show who's uh known as Pedro, but he's you know, a waterman and just this hugely respected um, figure in, in the surf community. But he's, you know, he's Irish and he, he's a firefighter in Dublin. So people forget that, yes, I mean, obviously you have to have to be a little bit more prepared for the elements surfing the British coasts. But, uh, you know, there are some pretty good waves around the, yep. around the nation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it, it's not a bad spot. You just need a whole lot more neoprene than you would think. <laughs> And now living in Canada, guess what? That's come in handy. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So you mentioned about the the military then. So talk to me about you know what your career aspirations in school and then your road into the RAF. So um, I think I wanted to be a pilot, then an astronaut, a brief stint with journalism, back to astronaut, and then 
back to pilot. Um, so that's what I always wanted to do. Um, I think without knowing why, in some ways, it was just growing up with my granddad, I'm like, yeah, I, I want to fly. I don't think I even went in a, like the first light aircraft that I went in, first experience is probably when I was like 14 or something. So I, I definitely wanted to be a pilot right up until this point. And then I actually went flying and went, oh, yeah, okay. I guess I guess that'd be all right, you know. <laughs> I guess I guess that's not too bad. Um, so that's what I always had in mind. I wanted to just join as early as I could, and and get flying. And I wanted to fly Harriers, so that was kind of what I definitely wanted to do. Um, so I got to the end of my A levels, which were a mess. Um, so I'm like, okay, this, this might not be ideal. I might have to go to university after all. Uh, and I applied to the air force at the time, did some of the tests, didn't get through. I think that was as a fighter control. I was just desperate to get in at that point. Oh, I should say maybe, uh, winding back. I joined the air cadets. I'd done that. Um, I then joined, uh, the reserves, uh, with the RAF regiment. So they're kind of like the infantry arm of the, uh, of the air force. It's going to be a lot of angry phone-ins from army guys now who are going to be like, no, they're not the shit. Um, <laughs> but uh, that that was like a reservist thing up the road, just as a as a gunner, go dig some holes on the weekend and and uh, paint your face. Um, and then I went to university, joined the university air squadron, uh, and got flying there and and got more serious about it. And uh, I kind of it took me a few goes. Like there wasn't. Um, uh, there wasn't a lot of places at the time. Um, and interesting hearing you talk about color perception. That's exactly what happened to me. Uh, when I was 12, they wheeled me in, did the uh, the Ashara test with all the dots. If I ever meet Dr. Ashara, he's, he's, he's getting a punch in the face, I tell you. But, oh, he's getting um, a kick in the dick from me. Okay, good. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should gang up on him. Um, and yeah, they basically said, yeah, you'll never... You'll never be a pilot. Your, your color perception's too bad. You're colorblind, is what they told me. Mm -hmm. But I can see colors, so I can't be colorblind. Yes, you are. Oh, interesting. So uh, my mom took me along to an optician who did the Ashara test, and they said, nope. And then he was pointing out colors on some other painting or chart, and, and I could tell them. So he's like, well, you've got a, a perception issue, but not you're not out and out colorblind. So that was about 17, I think, at the time. So that gave me a bit more hope that maybe I could get in. So I applied to the University Air Squadron, and they're like, um, mm, let's let's send you for some tests. So you do the normal test, you do the Shara test, no chance. But they actually, I must have scored highly enough in the interview that they're interested because they sent me down to uh, London, where the at the time the kind of um, aviation medical center was. And they did another test, which had these two um, lantern lights. So uh, in aviation, you've got like a white, a green, and a red lamp that they flash at you. It's not really used anymore, but, but that was it. And of course, the white's yellowish white, and the, the green's yellowish green, and the, the, they, they all kind of merge. But I did this test and, and passed. So they said, yeah, okay, you're, you're good enough to be a pilot, um, just kind of thing so uh that got me in and i didn't think about that for years until i got my civilian license about 17 years later after flying uh for 17 years and then the civilian um 
medical school made me uh, made, made me do more uh, color perception tests, which cost an extra two hundred pounds. So I wonder why they made me do that. But uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that's never bothered me. But hearing other people talk about it, it's like yeah, I was I was in that boat for sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, so I did the university escort and decided nope, this is it, shit or bust. So the last time I applied to the air force, I took all my other choices away because normally you had to rate like what you would be, so pilot number one, navigator number two, whatever, and so on and so forth. And I took it all away and just put pilot. And I went down there as an arrogant little shit, basically. And they're like, you put nothing else. I'm like, I don't want to do anything else. I'm good enough to be a pilot. Don't want any of this. And that seemed to do the trick. (laughs) (laughs) You're the kind of arrogant bastard that we need. Congratulations. (laughs) Apparently apparently so. When I I was trying to be nice, it wasn't going very far. So as as, as soon as I was a complete prick, apparently... That was the way to do it. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, and that that got me in. So um, that was after university. So I was I was right at the upper end of age limit at the time, uh, which I believe was twenty four and a half at the time, and I got in right around twenty three and a half, twenty four, something like that. So. Amazing. So what were the what was the the kind of training like for you? Because when we talk about all the aircraft that you ended up flying, but kind of what was the route from? I've never done anything in a plane apart from you know riding a, a light aircraft to to you know when you were ready to start deploying absolutely so um i was in an unusual system uh which was a product at that time um that when i was at the university air squad they ended up they ended up using essentially the ref's uh, syllabus so um the ref was split into elementary flying training which everyone did um basic flying training on um, like either helicopters or fast jet or multi-engines or whatever, then advanced flying training, then you would go to your aircraft type. Well, they, they, they used uh, the Univer- University Air Squadron as elementary flying training. So that meant in addition to a full-time degree that I was barely clinging on by my fingernails to, to get through this thing. I was doing electrical engineering and I can barely wire a plug. So I was vastly up my depth. Um, in addition to doing that, then I'm also doing part-time flying training, which now counts towards your career. So it's like, holy shit, that wasn't what I expected. So I got maybe halfway through that, then joined the Air Force proper. So first, the, first thing up is um, like officer training. So that's six months at RAF Cranwell. Um, marching up and down the square, hiding in holes, running around the place, trying not to fall asleep in lectures, that kind of thing. And um, I'd say it's fair that nearly all the aircrew don't take it that seriously because you know this is not the most difficult training you're going to experience on your path to to where you're going to be. You know, some of the other um, careers, sure, it's a bigger deal. Um, but for us, it's all a bit like, just get through the six months and then, you know, you'll get onto the proper stuff. So, um, that's what I did. I I went through the first six months and then they sent me back, uh, along with a friend back to my old university air squad to finish off flying training. So, okay, fine. And, um, we finished that off. And, uh, at the end of that, you would get streamed into fast jet, uh, helicopters or multi-engine depending on. Everyone's first choice was fast jet, obviously. And then it was a 50-50 toss-up whether you wanted to go to the airlines or whether you wanted to 
uh, go dig holes and pretend to be a soldier with helicopters. So it's like, I'll, I'll do that one. Um, I remember the day well, because my boss was a real, um, like joker and he called me in and, uh, he sits down and he goes, okay, Dave, he goes, uh, so it's not your first choice, but it's not your last choice. It's helicopters. Well done. And I'm like, Oh shit. Well, that wasn't what I was expecting. I was expecting fast jet. And I thought, you know what, like he's the kind of guy that's probably winding me up. So I spent the whole day looking for the punchline, waiting for the for it to drop. And and we had this big meeting with all the all the students that afternoon into the evening. And I thought, I know what's gonna happen. At the end, he's gonna spring up and go, Ah, Dave, got you there. No, he didn't do that. So <laughs> it was definitely helicopters so i'm like oh i i guess i better find something out about them um so i did and uh i figured oh yeah i i like the look of the the chinook there you know like that that seems to be the way to go um so i go off to uh, helicopter flying training and you learn in um, a machine we call the squirrel uh, north america knows better as the a star so light helicopter and um I don't know what it was about helicopters, but it clicked in a way that fixed wing flying didn't for me. It just kind of made sense. So I'd had a pretty rough ride in the university air squadron part of things, the elementary flying training, but helicopters seemed much easier to me just as a, it just made sense for the way I thought. So, um, I had a pretty good time at, um, uh, during flying training at a place called RF Shawbury. A uh, lot of good friends there. We had uh, we got up to lots of um, tricks and stunts and all the crazy shit that you get up to when you're, um, you know, an indestructible 20-something. Um, and at the end of that, like keeping the tradition alive of uh, not getting my first choice, we didn't get Chinooks. Uh, I got Pumas instead. Um, so that was me off to a place called Aria Fenson, just outside of Oxford. And uh, you do four months of, of conversion training onto that helicopter type. Um, so that was uh, the Puma for me. And from there, my first posting was going to be Northern Ireland. So um, finished up my four months and, and headed off um, over to Belfast. Now, what was that like? I and mean, we were talking still pre 9 11, aren't we? So, what, mm-hmm. was, uh, what was Belfast like at the kind of just before the millennia? Yeah. So it was. It was the end of the troubles, but the troubles weren't really completely over. Um, so we lived very much behind the wire. Um, so the, the, uh, it was a place called RAF Aldergrove, which was part civilian airport and part military airport. So I remember we used to fly back and forth. We worked kind of three weeks on, one week off. And uh, you'd fly back and go through a, a special secret door uh, in the airport so no one knew who you were with your short haircut and your military green luggage. You know, you, you could have been just anybody, just <laughs> anybody. So that was um, – I'm sure that was done with the best of intentions, but it didn't seem to work very well from, from my point of view. Um, we weren't allowed to go into Belfast at night, so, of course, we never did. Wink, wink. Um, we definitely just didn't say we were going elsewhere. Um, so it, it was it was unusual. Like you know, I've I've never seen this before in my life, where I've got to sign in and sign out, and someone's tracking you, and uh, there are places you probably really shouldn't go. And um, 
I would say you would approach Belfast just like any other big city is like there's some pretty obvious warning signs of places you shouldn't be if you just tune into your surrounds. Um, and that was the same for, for Belfast. So, you know, you, you, you were never going to say you're in the military or anything like that. Although God knows how many like English people with short haircuts there were in Belfast at the time that were non-military, probably not many. Um, but yeah, um, it, it was definitely a little bit strange. I think one of the, the weirdest things we had was, um, uh, I had some friends over and my, um, well, girlfriend at the time, now wife, um, for a Christmas party. And on the way back to the main airport, the taxi driver came off the um, like normal route and started taking us through these estates. And it's like, oh, shit, this doesn't feel good. But the only good thing about it was like it's all big red hands and red, white and blue curbstones. And it's like, all right, I don't feel great about this, but we're, we're in the right color if it if it turned to the you know the gold the green and the white then it's problem so that was a bit weird been driven through parts of town that you know you shouldn't be but other than that it was fairly straightforward uh for us yeah now that was again like pre-9-11 so correct me if i'm wrong i've got the timeline right was it prior that you found yourself working with special operations as well yes uh so Again, it was all winding down at the time, but uh, our squadron had two um, special ops flights, basically. One was uh, an aircraft that would sit up high and had like a big recce capability. So from a pilot point of view, it was boring to fly, but really that was the important one. They were getting all this uh, all this intelligence um, for the ongoing operations. The exciting one to fly was there was us plus four army links, and we were there to basically insert special forces during their operations. Uh, it was just one of the methods of, of uh, insertion. So we did lots of training. We never did anything for real. We'd, we'd kind of gone beyond, um, uh, not beyond the need, but there, there were certainly not as many operations going down at the time. But it was great because we actually got to to hang out with the the SAS and actually spend some time with them and see some of the the things that they do and the way they operate, which is just phenomenal. You know, professionalism doesn't cover it. They, they they're pretty important, pretty pretty incredible people. Yeah. Now it's always interesting getting someone on the show who was in pre and post nine eleven. So. It's kind of a, a long question, but what what did your training and preparation look like pre? You know, what were you doing? You know, what was your experience of 9-11? And then how did that shift for you and your unit after 9-11? So um, let me think. I was in the process of, so that was, I was still in Northern Ireland when 9-11 um, went down. And nothing really changed immediately for us, you know, the, the Northern Ireland mission continued, but you got a sense that the Cold War was suddenly off and this was where our uh, futures were going to lie. Um, and everyone got that feeling that there's probably going to be more deployments in our life coming up now in, in our future. Um, so I don't know, maybe six months after that, I left Northern Ireland and um, I came back to 33 Squadron at RF Benson and 
pretty much straight away. Uh, it used to be that all our efforts were on the uh, Arctic. Um, and that was the big kind of NATO job that uh, if there was a, a war with Russia, we were going to deploy to northern Norway uh, and kind of hide missiles and boats and things up there. And there was going to be a lot of point defense for it going on. So as a result, the the main thrust of the squadron really was a big Arctic exercise every every year for four or five months, I think it was. Well, as I got there, suddenly that was losing importance and they'd stood up a desert flight, which, which I got myself on. Um, but again, like typical Air Force, you know, we, we've, we've got big aspirations in the, in the British military, but we are still a pretty small force these days compared to what's going on around us. So um, my flight commander was this guy called Reggie Patel, and it was like he'd stepped straight out of a, a boy's own adventure book from the 1920s. He, he had that air about him. And um, he basically said, yeah, I've been given desert flight, but I've been given no money for an exercise. And within four months, we're in Morocco on a desert exercise that he'd managed to cobble together and call in favors and strong arm other people. Well, that was prophetic because six months after that, we're stood in Kuwait going, holy shit, this is, this is real. Um, so although there was a lot of indicators of this is where it was going, no one really placed huge importance on it yet. And it was only through people like Reggie kind of cobbling together a, an exercise and actually having the forethought to, and I think really he was looking for, you know, four weeks on the piss in Marrakesh, which also happened. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it turned out to be a real, um, a really timely exercise to go out and actually start operating in the desert. Brilliant. So did you stay working with special operations as well, or was this a separate? No, I, at that point I'd gone back to uh, just a normal squadron. Okay. Uh, I got to the end of my time in Northern Ireland, and um, I was supposed to be going to uh, Chinooks, um, and they have uh, a special operations squadron. So I was kind of given the the, the nod that that's that's where you're going to end up. And uh, I just got engaged, so I planned my entire wedding round uh, being based at RAF Odium, and about. 90% of the planning and everything sorted. I got a phone call from my career manager who said, yeah, about that. Um, wouldn't you rather go and fly Pumas on 33 squad? And I'm like, no, I wouldn't. And he's like, that's nice. Cause you go into fly Pumas on 33 <laughs> squad. I said, I've just, I've just organized an entire wedding. Odium is like, that's nice. Um, and it's like, okay, great. So things change. You might be getting a theme here of me not getting what I want ever. So <laughs> if, if that's coming through, that's about right. Um, so, I, so I find myself on 33. And um, just before I left, I retrained to uh, support special forces again. We were, we were going to do a job, um, like basically inserting guys right into the heart of the city. Um, just as I was about to go, they decided they didn't need me for that. They needed me for something else. So once again, I got to do all the training and none of the operations. Gotcha. So, Did you find yeah. yourself serving in Iraq or Afghanistan? Uh, yeah, three tours of Iraq. Okay, that's what um, I thought. So as you probably heard me ask and you know, other people that were deployed, and I always preface it the same way, we, the civilian community, get a very polarizing view 
of war. You know, the very pro-war, the very anti-war, and then there's obviously the men and women that serve that are actually on the ground that see the middle of the road reality. So, was there a point when you found yourself deployed in an actual combat zone um, where, regardless of the politics that sent you out there, you realized that there were horrible people that needed to be taken care of? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Iraq was a, a, a tricky one. We we kind of went, it feels like we went on a bit of a lie when you get right there. So we, we can talk about that later. But at the time when I deployed, you know, 9-11 was very much in everyone's mind. And um, we got told Saddam has got, weapons of mass destruction, and he's a tyrant. Everyone knows he's a tyrant. Um, we need to go sort that out. So the way I'd then, I'd only been married under a year, but the way I justified that to my wife was like, you know, I'm going out there to make you and, and everyone here safer. That That's kind of what we went to do. Is like, this is going to make the world a lot safer. And unfortunately, I don't think it went like that at all. I think if anything, we, we kicked the hornet's nest and made it less safe um but certainly that was the mindset when we were going out that this we do actually have a real job to do here um we've got to get this this figured out so we we definitely went for what felt like the right reasons and in our minds we were all pretty clear on what we were doing there it felt like a fairly just enterprise when when we first set off for sure yeah. So what about the actual um, people in Iraq then? So what, I, what I'm hearing from a lot of people is you know, that there's this kind of misnomer that, oh, we're at war with Iraq. We're at war with Afghanistan. No, we're at, we're at war with the shitbags in those countries. Yep. Um, and the victims are usually the residents of Iraq or Afghanistan. So were there any things that you were seeing happening to the Iraqi people that kind of made you kind of firsthand witness that despite maybe some of the smoke and mirrors of what sent you over there, that there were, you know, real, real horrible humans out there. Uh, absolutely. And it was, um, it was a bit of a, a turning point for me, I guess, in how I felt about what we were doing there. And it was during my second tour and, um, uh, there was a big fight in um, Alamara area, it was called. And um, the army were, were, in the end, they got uh, Challenger tanks and rolled them down the street to, to try and pacify this this uh, city because it was just, it was getting out of hand. And um, there was already a town called Mukta Al-Kabir, Mac, uh, that was off limits. Um, a crowd basically broke into the uh, the police station and executed a bunch of military police, British military police. That happened shortly before I got there. So, so Mac was a no-go. Um, we were in Alamara um, getting mortared and rocketed and all that kind of stuff. But uh, we were out flying a thing called um, Eagle VCP. So VCP being vehicle checkpoint, Eagle being we're flying around. And the idea is, is you, you fly around and unpredictably drop the troops who form a hasty roadblock, check the vehicles coming through, see what's going on, and then move on to the next one. And uh, pitch black night turned out without a lunar eclipse, just to make things darker. And um, they saw this vehicle speeding out of Mukta al-Kabir, heading towards the, the, the main city. And the troops like, get us down there, get us down there now. So we, we, we fly this horrible approach turns out we're surrounded by all these telegraph wires on the road it's it's nasty we we put them down the troops just get off 
before the vehicle hits us because it's speeding and hadn't seen this darkened helicopter land because why would they? We're all pumped up, but, you know, great, we stopped the vehicle and all the rest. And it was a, a family trying to get their four-year-old daughter to hospital because she'd been shot in all the, like, just infighting in Mukta Al-Kabir. You know, people were just taking the opportunity to kill the opposite religion. Um, and that's what really kind of made me think, well, what the hell are we doing? You know, like, here's a country that's just basically, um, like, had the rules taken away. Uh, like they like sat down for all these faults was keeping a, a lid on things. It's a free for all now. And what are we doing? The, the best that we can offer is delaying care for uh, a four year old girl with a, you know, a gut shot. It's like, this is, this is crazy. They're just people trying to live their lives. How would I feel if that was me trying to get my family through in the middle of the night and foreign soldiers are like flagging me down and, and checking my, uh, permits and treat me like a third class citizen in my own country. And it, it's like, yeah, these people are just trying to live their lives in some terrible situations because it's always the handful. It's always the few that ruin it for the many. You know, these, these people that saw a, a chance for a, a land grab to get some power, to get some importance, to, to move whatever shitty agenda they had to move that forward are now just ruining this country. It's, you know, it's in, in pieces. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's such a double-edged sword because, I mean, you know, some of the atrocities that I've heard from the men and women on the ground, you know, they there's a lot that we did over there, the British, Australians, the Americans, yep. you know, and all the other allied forces. But there's also an element of us, obviously, the occupation element, which definitely created more enemies and therefore made it worse for the people. You talked about the WMDs, and this was something that, uh, you know, really struck me as a completely naive, you know, civilian 20 years ago was, and I remember because the towers hit when I was working in Japan and it was the towers have been hit. We're going into Iraq and I'm like, wait, does anyone not realize this is a completely fucking different country that we're talking about? It's like Mexico attacking someone and we're going to, we're going to go into Canada to fight back. Like, I don't quite understand what this is. And then hearing now so many people that have been on the ground that have served decades in the military that said, yes, a response was necessary, but these conflicts were prolonged so much and caused so much loss of life from both sides. Meanwhile, you know, some people are getting billions and billions of dollars off the blood of Americans and British and Iraqis and, you know, you name it. Um, you know, it's not one or the other, it's both. So talk to me about your perspective of, you know, what you were told the reason was that you were sent versus, you know, some of your perspective now as, as a, a wiser veteran. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about it as, as you were talking there, James, you know, that the, the big difference for me was like, um, the first deployment was for the, um, initial, well, we weren't allowed to call it an invasion. Um, it was the uh, liberation or whatever. I, re I remember the RAF regiment were parked near us. And they had all their Land Rovers ready to go. And they had, I, I guess they're about like an A4 sized Union Jack flying um, from the, the, the mast. And they weren't allowed to have that. that. That came across as an invasion force. So a couple of days later, I went by it and they were like postcard sized Union Jacks flying off everything. So apparently, like the smaller the flag, the less aggressive 
it is. You Can, know, they kind of put like a smiley face or something. Maybe so. Yeah. <laughs> have a nice day. You know, it, it, it's that, bull, it, it's that bullshit. But you know, we, we went into Iraq not knowing what to expect. And within a couple of weeks, you know, it, it, it was kind of crazy. They were retreating faster than we could get to them for the most part. And I think a lot of people just took the uniforms off, put the guns under their bed and went, let's see how this, this works out. We're flying along. We've got people waving to us everywhere. Everyone's waving. I came back a year later, everyone's shooting. Everyone's like, you fly around at night and there's tracer coming your way from every farmhouse. You know, people are just pissed off with it. Um, so I think there was a chance there that if we had have just got rid of Saddam, improved their infrastructure and did something meaningful to their way of life, that we could have all walked away, pat ourselves on the back. And I think they would have calmed down. They would have gone, okay, this is actually better than it was. Thanks very much. But instead, I, I think in the desire to carve it up, to, to get people, like you say, the billionaires get richer, you know, in, a, in an effort to carve up those contracts, no one really considered the Iraqi people and their feelings in it. Uh, you know, so you, you, you've got these people that were like important people in their society who are now told like, no, you're, you're bugger all. You can go work for minimum wage, maybe. And, uh, oh, we've got all these foreign contractors coming in, so we don't need you anymore for that. Well, I think eventually they all sat around and got their guns back out and thought, all right, well, let's do something about this. So there, there was there was a time we could have just pacified that country and and, and gone about our business, I think. But we, we stayed way beyond our welcome. And we just, it, it never looked like we were doing anything for that country other than stirring it up. You know, it, it just seemed to get worse and worse. Uh, my, my final one was, uh, I was based in Baghdad International and we were flying over um, Baghdad into the green zone. And that was, I think at the time, the most hotly contested piece of airspace in the world. Like everyone that could throw some lead up into the sky was was doing that. They, they just had enough, you know. It was a, a shitty situation. When it's so important that we hear the veterans perspective you know sebastian Junger talks about the veterans town hall which i think is a great idea you know because this is a recurring theme now reoccurring theme and you know speaking to so many veterans is like yes we should have gone in yes there should have been a response from 9-11 no it shouldn't have lasted 20 years you know it's a very very resounding thing and then that industrial military complex element is terrifying same with the pharmaceutical industry and the you know industrial farming all these other things that we see take lives every year yeah. um one, you know, the other side of the coin that I also like to ask people, though, what about moments of kindness and compassion amidst the battlegrounds that you were on? Yeah, I, I didn't get a lot of human input, but we did have, we, we had the kids come up to us, like we'd, we'd try and carry all the extra boiled sweets um, to, to hand out to the kids. Sometimes you get mobbed and people were very curious, but again, it's kind of terrifying at the same time you know we, we were in this um compound oh I, I don't know some somewhere where we weren't protected we landed on we shut down we we're within this wall uh, and suddenly it's like whack-a-mole there's all these heads appearing and it's because it's the local kids and then families that want to come and see what's going on it's, it's brand new but for you seeing a sea of faces that you don't recognize is is kind of scary it's like which way is this gonna go you know and that first year the way it went was people were actually interested and impressed to see us the the following year i think i'd have been running for cover if people's heads had been poking up you know so um we didn't really get that much on the on the battlefield we we 
we flew a lot of medevac. We flew some of the um, the Iraqis out. We were flying. Uh, I mean, this is the sad bit, James, as well. Like towards the end of our time, we, we'd started off with uh, medevac for troops getting hit, um, British, American, and Iraqi. And by the end of it, we're flying um, like premature babies and families and things because the people had just gone and looted the hospitals. They'd looted everything. The, the, the rules had been taken away. And in that brief moment of no rules, people lost their shit. And, and they were just taking anything that they felt might have value to the point that all the um, like premature baby incubators were gone. So you had this medical staff who were the highly trained doctors. You know, they come and get a good education and they're like, yeah, we've got to come and, and beg you to take our patients away because we can't care for them because all our stuff's been taken. And shit like that, you know, like one of the big um, one of the uh, big scams, I guess you'd call it, going on at the time was they were pulling down um, power cables to strip the copper out the center of the, the power cables. So they, like, not only did we do a number on the infrastructure, but they did it on themselves too before anyone could like get a grip back on this place. You know, we, we had a plan to go in there and, and kick the sandcastle over, but we never seemed to have a plan to how we were going to put it back and make everyone like prosper and, and move on. It was just like, you know, part one, um, smash up Iraq, part two, part three, we all go home and, you know, say job well done. And it's like, what, what's the part two? It's like, never mind the part two. We'll, we'll figure that out. How hard can that be? Yeah, it's it's so sad as well because I had um, Fahim Fazli on who was is originally Iraqi. He's actually living in the States now. He works as an actor, but he took some time out of his acting career and assigned himself to the Marines as an interpreter. So he got to see, you know, all the different kind of perspectives. And one thing that a lot of us don't think about is like, yeah, you, you're taking all these Iraqis and, and the, bringing them to the U.S. He said, but Iraq, I'm sorry, uh, Afghanis, my apologies. But he goes, but Afghanistan needs the doctors, the scientists to make Afghanistan good. And I'm like, I'd never even thought about that before. And it's the same with Mexico. So if you create, you know, an, an environment that makes it worse, whereas people are fleeing, the chances of them recovering becomes less and less and less because you don't have the very men and women that you need to rebuild that country again. Yeah, it's a very interesting perspective because absolutely people see the writing on the wall. It's like, get me out of here. But then that country can't prosper. You've just taken away all the, the intelligence. What, what do you expect to happen? You know, it's uh, yeah, it, it was, it was funny times, James, like from the start to the finish, you know, like from the start of, we went into um, uh, our supply um, building and uh, it was like a yard sale or a jumble sale as you and I would know it, but it was just piles of old junk to go to the desert with it's like really this is the the best we can do and apparently that was the best we could do and within a couple of years everyone's got these brand new funky uniforms and you know everyone's got kit specifically for this theater and you realize the amount of money that's costing is 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 crazy um my my brother-in-law um is a royal engineer and uh he went to afghanistan i remember he came back and showed me his, you know, everyone makes a unit video when they, they go out to these places. And um, I just remember him showing me, you know, the, the, the fight in this 
this, this essentially they're fighting a goat herder, um, you know, in this little stone hut. And he's got an AK-47 and some bullets. He's holding down a patrol. And eventually they call an airstrike in on him. And it's at that point you realize that we are bankrupt in our country. There's a guy with a $5 AK and probably 50 cents worth of bullets holding down hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of military hardware, which results in millions of dollars being spent to generate an aircraft and a guided weapon to take out one person. And we were doing that in Iraq and Afghanistan. So now when we look at healthcare and infrastructure in our own countries and it's like, oh, we've got no money, it's like, yeah, we turn that into kinetic energy to do what? What exactly? So it's it's pretty wild. Yeah. Really. I just had one of my friends, Nate, uh, Jeff Nichols, who's uh, Navy SEAL, SEAL Team 6, and very, very respected uh, strength and conditioning coach now. And um, he said after the withdrawals, he's like, all those bills were paid. And again, I mean, who the hell would James Gearing know about any of this shit? I get to speak yeah. to all these amazing people. He's like, yeah. It didn't matter. They left it there because the people that actually made money from the war had already been paid by the taxpayer. And I'm like, damn. So that mass, you know, exodus and the impact it had on the Iraqi people and, and our veterans, you know, the people that actually wanted the money, they, they were, they were fine. It doesn't affect me. I, I got paid. So, you know, you do what you want now. And that is heartbreaking when we have like the NHS, for example, back home, which I adore as a, as a philosophy. Just, you know, bare bones because it's been cut and cut and cut. And yet we allow these companies to make billions off war. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's a crazy situation we find ourselves in at the moment, I think, with priorities as a society. It's like this, this should not be our priority, but so often is. Absolutely. Well, back to the, you know, the, the mission of the men and women in the uniform. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that a seeking in the, the painting behind you? It is indeed. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> when I think of seekings, I think of search and rescue. So yep. talk to me about how you, you kind of found yourself in that arena. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I got towards the end of my time in, um, like 33 squadron. I was, I was reaching the end of that. And uh, my wife had been taken ill. She, she, out the blue, developed an autoimmune disease. And it was, it was pretty scary stuff at the time because the doctors didn't know what it was going to be. Is it uh, going to be a um, brain aneurysm, um, all this kind of stuff? And Iraq was relentless by this point. You know, if you weren't going to Iraq, you were coming back from Iraq. And if you weren't coming back from Iraq, you were getting ready to go again. And it was just, the hamster wheel was spinning up faster and faster. And uh, it was stressful on her. And um, we hadn't been married very long. And I didn't want to end the marriage in the, the cliche military way of like, yeah, you put the job first. So it's like, I've, I've got to do something else. And uh, uh, one of your previous guests, John Hudson, is uh, one of my best friends. And he was at the survival school. And he's like, why don't you come here? So uh, it's a long story, but I applied and eventually I got it uh, with everyone in the PM world saying this is career suicide. Um, it was, they were right, <laughs> but I didn't really give a shit at that point. Um, so I transitioned out the cockpit for three years and uh, taught at the survival school alongside John, um, where the only thing I didn't want to do was desert survival, having been in the desert every year for the past five years. And I got 
does it survive? I'm seeing a theme now. You should have just said, yeah, you're right. I'm colorblind. Forget it. Yeah, I'll find something else to do. It's fine. So, uh, yeah, I found myself on the Desert Survival course again. So I managed to revamp that, fortunately, and make it a bit more realistic. So that was, that was good. Um, and living near a beach meant it afforded us plenty of um, time to go on a beach recce over lunchtime, you know, just to, to see if we could survive on that beach on our surfboards and our wetsuits. Um, so it, it got up towards the end of, of my time at uh, the, the survival school. And I was told when I went there, it's like, don't get comfortable, mate, because you're straight back to the Puma. Okay, all right, well, it's been a reprieve. And uh, I got towards the end of my time, and the career manager had changed. And um, it was a, a guy that I knew fairly well, and we, we got on. And instead of saying, this is what you're getting, he's like, what do you want to do? I said, well, talk to me. You know, let, 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 Let's see what my options are. And... Um, all my time in the Puma, uh, I was a, um, a, a helicopter tactics instructor, as they called it. And I'd done quite well on that course. And uh, like, so as a result, they were like, well, you could even go back to, to Fast Jet if you want. You could go to Fast Jet. Uh, we've got some uh, drone jobs out in Las Vegas. Um, or, you know, tell me what you think. And it's like, well, kind of flattered to go back to Fast Jet. It's what I always wanted to do. But I was mid thirties now, I'm kind of settled, you know, I'm, I'm married. I'm pretty happy with what I've got. It's like, do I want to go back, surround myself with 20 year olds, which sounds horrible in the first place. Um, but go through another year or two of flying training, the pressure that that brings and, and sure I'm, I'm older and wiser now, but I'm also probably less motivated than I was. So that's, you know, the, the agent experience aren't necessarily going to offset the, do I want to give up every night studying again? Um, so I kind of ruled that out. And then I thought about drones. And then I thought, I can't, I don't know how I could reconcile get up, getting up in the morning, kissing the missus goodbye, driving to work, dropping bombs on pixels all day long, and then, you know, come home and put your feet up in front of the TV, job well done. It, it, it seemed too real, too, too unreal that a job with so many consequences um, that you would you you could do from your armchair kind of thing. It it feels like a real mental disconnect, and I I think those guys are struggling with a lot of PTS on that side of things, and I I, I could see that. So I didn't really want to go down that path. Um, and even though I've been in the military, I'm you know I'm a lover, not a fighter. Um, that the whole you know if you take a life, it changes you in a way that you will never be the same again. Sure, you, you, you can get over it and move on, but that whole you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back, and it's like, well, that, that's a job where I'm very probably going to kill people in the weirdest way I could imagine. So I, I decided, no, I don't fancy that. Um, so I'd always been interested in search and rescue, but um, they're kind of like, it, it's it's the forbidden fruit in the RAF. If you say you want to be in search and rescue, you are, uh, to quote, um, an old boss of the survival school, a bedwetting battle dodger. Um, so that was kind of the, the general feeling, you know, uh, people in the bar would go, sir, boy. And the answer was wanker. So it's like, okay, do I want to be a bedwetting battle dodging pipe and slipper using uh, a boy wanker? And I thought, 
I do actually. I think that would be the best way of doing business because um, I've been flying medevac out in Iraq and it's like, what if I could do that where I save lives, but instead of sitting in a sandy shithole, I got to sit on a lazy boy in between jobs and drink tea. And it's like, that actually sounds pretty, pretty good. Um, so I said, okay, I'd like to go search and rescue. So they said, okay. Uh, so I got sent off to RAF Valley in Anglesey to do my training. And uh, we had six bases around the, the UK. Um, my first choice was Chivener, which is just over in Devon. I was down in Cornwall for, for those uh, English geography buffs. Um, it was about an hour and a half away. Um, and there was a few others that, that might have, have um, uh, been good. Uh, the worst possible outcome for me was a base called Watersham in East Anglia because they got the fewest missions in a year. And I thought, if I'm doing this, I want to be out. I want to be busy. And my second to last choice is RAF Valley because it was a seven-hour drive from Anglesey. So the day comes that we're all getting assigned where do we want to go, and the other three course members go in and like, oh, I got my first choice. Oh, I got my first choice. Oh, I got my second choice. Yeah, I got my fifth choice. So <laughs> that was good. So I'm like, oh, bloody hell. Here we go again. Um, but out of sheer belligerence, my wife and I decided that she'd keep living in Cornwall and I would commute to North Wales. And again, geography buffs, it's about a seven hour painful journey uh, through the guts of the country. <laughs> so I did live to regret that decision, but the rest of it, I don't regret. <laughs> well, before we get into the, you know, what you ended up doing with that position, just I want to make sure we kind of stay on the timeline roughly. Um, you, one of the, the men that you work with is, is a pretty known, well-known gentleman. Um, and as we talk before we start recording, we don't hear very much about the royal family from an external point of view, unless it's some kind of, you know, news article. Obviously, there's been some negativity towards Harry, for example, who, God forbid, he fell in love with an American girl and moved to the US. Sounds familiar. Um, right. <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, these are men that have served. These are men that have done incredible things with our wounded warriors, with mental health. So talk to me about working with Prince William. Yeah. So, um, that was a strange period in time for uh, a lad from Grimsby uh, to suddenly be bumping shoulders with a, a, a royal. So um, I'd been on Sea Flight 22 Squadron, which was my search and rescue flight at RAF Valley. Uh, I'd been there for probably about a year and a half or so. So um, I was upgraded to uh, aircraft captain. So I was running my own crew, flying my own missions. And the press was alive with Williams coming to search and rescue. So we're like, oof, all right, what does that mean? Um, and no one really knew for sure, because it could have meant so many different things. Um, like, for instance, I've, I've met his uncle, uh, Andrew, and uh, he's a bit of a strange fish, and there's a lot of stories about him and his time in the military. And, and um, without doing the guy too much of a disservice, I think he was pretty arrogant at... Um, uh, the people that had to deal with him didn't necessarily have a particularly good time alongside him. So it's like, well, this could be miserable with William or, you know, it's also kind of interesting. He's a celebrity. 
and no one knew where he was going to go. So everyone's speculating and it's like, oh, he'll go to Chivna because the Marines are there. They can defend it. It's like, oh, uh, he'll go to Watersham because the army are there. The army will defend him or he'll go up to Scotland because they've, you know, they've got links to Scotland. And part of me was thinking, I bet he comes here because his dad's the Prince of Wales. And like, you know, we're, we're a busy unit. Like uh, uh, the sea flight at RF Valley was uh, one of the two busiest units. The other one being up in Scotland at Lossiemouth. They were the historically the two busiest. And I thought, I kind of get the impression he actually wants to do something. I bet he wants to go to one of those. Anyway, it, it gets announced in due course he's coming to Valley. And um, the training squadron and the main squadron uh, shared a, an ops room. And I walked in one day and I'm on my own and he's on his own. I was like, bloody hell. I've not really been well prepared for for this situation. I don't, I'm not very good in social situations. But if he was any other co-pilot about to join this squadron, what would I do? I'd go over, I'd introduce myself, I'd say hi and welcome and and, and make him feel welcome to the, the unit. So I'm like, all right, well, this is it then. Like, there's no one around to, to see me make a fool of myself. So I'll, I'll go up and say hi. And if he's a dick, then we know. And if he's not a dick, then we also know. So I, I, I went over and said, hey, hey, you know, like, welcome to the flight. I think you'll enjoy it, blah, blah, blah. And he couldn't have been nicer. So it's like, okay, first test passed. We, 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 we can do business here. Um, and then really... I, I don't know what to say. He was fantastic. Like it, it always seems like you come across as like the, you know, the boot kicker, but uh, or boot licker, I should say. Um, but we had three co-pilots all join around the same time. And if you didn't know who he was, or if you didn't know what he was, you, you would never have got it from the way he uh, carried himself and, and, um, and worked alongside us. There was never any hint of calling him, sir, uh, he was just uh, William, and he worked hard. And then he'd go home, and you'd see him on TV announcing the FA Cup or something. Uh, it's like, okay, that's slightly different to the other co-pilots we have. But when he turned up for a day's work, he turned up for a, a day's work. Uh, he was a good pilot, good decision maker, which you you get that feeling that he, he's obviously come from that background. So when he transitioned to captain, it was it was pretty easy going for him to be honest he, he put the work in he had some natural talent on the sticks he couldn't play call of duty to save his life so. <laughs> did he tell you that that was his fifth choice as well yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah. he said i really wanted to go here but you know they, they, they crammed me down there <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you talk about you know the his background i mean again you know when i look at those two you know boys when they were and and the trauma that they went through you know, the loss of a mother and even, even the Parker Bowles. So Camilla Parker Bowles was my sister's best friend's mother. So we were around that family a lot and watching them get dragged through the media and knowing that she's a, you know, a really, really sweet woman, you know, I mean, it's, it's horrendous. So yeah, when, when you see someone wearing a uniform as a royalty, it could, as you said, it could be one of two things. It's, it's a costume or they've actually are worthy of the uniform and it's so, great when you hear yes you know whether it's william or harry these these young men are only carrying on the altruism that their mother displayed in the royal family but they're also serving you know the way they should be serving no absolutely and and he he took it a hundred percent seriously um was totally committed and you could tell he had other things to do but when he was there he was like i say he was there we we 
performed some great rescues together, uh, which I think I was telling you before, it made me chuckle because you, you read the comment section of all the online you know, kind of um, news outlets. And it's like, oh, yeah, they're all phony missions for, for William. And they're, they're just faked and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, all right, I'm going to have to go through my logbook and cross a few out then because they, they felt quite real at the time <laughs> when we were, you know, hovering in the cloud with the blade tips feet from the cliffs and William's holding it steady. It seemed like he was doing that for real. But now that I know it was just all bullshit, great, you know. Yeah, the keyboard um, warriors of the world educating yeah. the planet <laughs> yeah but it, it was the the weird part of it was was um you knew more about him than you would know about an average person coming to the squadron because i you know i'm a few years older than him so i've grown up like with him in the news since he was born yeah you know i i know his story or some of it and you have to try and shut that out you can't talk about things like that because if he doesn't want to bring them up, that's not how you would talk in a normal course of a conversation, you know, like someone you never met before and go, Oh, tell me all about how it was, um, you know, when your mother died or something, you would never say that to them. And you could see people sometimes almost tripping over it. You'd see him in the news and they'd want to talk about it. It's like, no, 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 no. Like we don't know that part of his story. If he wants to tell us that's on him. If he doesn't want to tell us, we shouldn't know that. It's, it's the press has made us aware of aspects of his life that we shouldn't have access to. So sometimes you had to really kind of catch yourself and not say something like down that 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 path. Um, but treat him like a normal guy, and 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 that's how it was. It was it was it was fun to uh, to have him on the on the squadron. Absolutely. So just, just give us an overview then of some of the search and rescue. Cause I think what's interesting with, with protecting the coast in the UK is we have, for example, the lifeboat, which is, you know, basically volunteer, um, you know, versus Coast Guard doing all the stuff here in the US. So what did it look like? Um, you know, your role in that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, search and rescue was like, basically came into fruition i think john talked to uh, a bit about how the boats the fast boats used to go and, and pick up the spitfire pilots and those kind of people that was that was the beginning and it develops into helicopters and um it was for um you know ejectees pilots military pilots that ejected from their aircraft around the coast and then as aircraft got safer, they realized that actually that was such a small percentage of what they were doing that it's either stay relevant or lose your job. Um, so they kind of transitioned into uh, providing aid to civilian power. So um, I did everything from assist armed police to um, fly premature babies in the middle of the night through to taking injured fishermen off boats in high seas or injured hikers in, in Snowdonia. Um, so geographically where we were, all the, all the bases had about an hour's range ring that interlocked around the UK. So there was uh, six military bases at the time and a couple of civilian ones that, that provided coverage all the way around the UK. Um, so really most of our work was into Snowdonia, into the mountains around there. Uh, but we also covered part of the Irish Sea as well. So we, we had exactly, as you say, uh, we had a bunch of uh, lifeboat stations, uh, volunteer lifeboat stations that also protected that water. Um, and we also had a bunch of mountain rescue teams that were on foot 
into Snowdonia. And, and those men and women were very impressive. Um, the speed of response, they, they were like mountain goats with medical training. It was, it was pretty impressive. We had a good working relationship with, with, with those uh, guys and girls. Um, so there's lots of options of things to use, but generally we were about the fastest. We were on a 15 minutes uh, call out by day and 45 by night, but probably an average launch was about 10 minutes. Uh, from hearing what it was to to, to getting going, and uh, yeah, sorry. No, no, please carry on. No, I, I, I was going to say. So uh, you weren't quite sure what was was coming. Um, we had a very distinct uh, job phone, as we called it. it. It played a particular noise. I'm sure if you played that to me in the middle of the night, I'd probably soil myself and leap from the bed. Um, and uh, we would kind of crowd around this phone and the first thing we wanted to hear was wet or dry. And uh, so is it over water, over land? Because you might have to get your immersion suit on. So we'd start throwing the immersion suits on, head to the helicopter, get it cranked up, get a point on a map and then, then kind of figure out everything on the, on the way. Um, and that was, that was it. But uh, we had all kinds of, all kinds of calls, lots of various different things. Yeah, it's the one thing. What two two roles had I ever been young enough to enter the U.S. military? I think the PJ Power Rescue is incredible in in the Air Force here, and then the Rescue Diver, you know, is another one, which yeah. I believe so. A rescue Swimmer, mm-hmm. which I believe is the Coast Guard. Um, so you know, those two roles, and again, it's rescue, and like you said, you know, a lot of the the branches are out there pursuing you know and 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 controlling and killing whatever needs to happen but those two are both responding in more like a fire paramedic style response absolutely our rear crew uh so we would have uh, a winch operator and a winch man sexist as it is sorry that's what we called them but um uh, they would come from uh, a helicopter background or not not necessarily a helicopter background background but um like a flight engineer background. Um, so they had some air experience already. And then they would basically be show or selected as they went through training to either operate the winch or go down on the winch. And those that went down became fully trained paramedics. So they were the same qualifications as a street paramedic in the UK. Um, so they had to do a lot of supplementary schooling uh, to, to get them to that point. And, um, quite often they would be the first on scene. Um, Sometimes there'd be ambulance crews there. Sometimes the mountain rescue teams would either be on scene or very close behind, but quite often they could be the first person there dealing with all kinds of medical emergencies with their limited equipment. Um, And we were looking really then just to stabilize scoop and go, you know, rather than turn it into a big kind of um, operation on the side of the mountain. But everyone was different. Some guys took a lot of work before they were able to package them to to actually get them on the helicopter. Beautiful. Well, I want to move to your journey to Canada to make sure that we have some time to talk about some of the stressors of, of the job and um, sure. that one near miss that you told me about when we talked before. So kind of walk me through what took you from the UK to Canada and then ultimately into the medevac side. Yeah, sure. So um, my wife and I had always wanted to live and work overseas. Uh, it'd been a pipe dream of ours for, for some time. You get to 38 in the RAF and it, it's kind of up or out. Um, and there's a few ways of staying in, but when I was offered staying in, what do you want to do? 
Well, search and rescue was supposed to be going away. It got privatized in the, in the UK, as I'm sure you're aware. So uh, really, it was going back to uh, the front lines, Iraq and Afghanistan. And I'll never, I'll never forget this. So we had, um, so uh, career managers change every couple of years. And uh, um, we had this guy um, who's an ex-Australian um, Air Force guy who is now running uh, the career management side of things, a guy called Shane. And we were on uh, helicopters together, we were on Pumas together. So um, I'm on course at RF Valley, sat having my breakfast, and uh, Shane walks into the dining room. He's like, ah, oh, Dave, not seeing you for ages. I'll, I'll just grab my breakfast and come and have a chat. I'm like, okay, great. And he walks up to me and he's just about to sit in the chair next to me. And he goes, so what are you doing at RF Valley? I said, oh, I'm on the search and rescue course. He goes, gay. Walked to the end of the the table, slammed his breakfast down and wouldn't look me in the eye or engage me for the rest of the morning. So I'm like, all right, cool. (laughs) By the way, I wet my bed as well. (laughs) Yeah, so don't worry about it. But it's like, I guess he got chased by some saw boys as a child through some deep dark forest or something, but he had a real problem with it. (laughs) And um, that came to a head about six months later, I'd been offered um, they, they called it specialist aircrew back in the day. And basically you, you stay flying, uh, your wages go up, but you don't get promoted. Happy with that. And uh, I went in to, to see him. So this is like potentially the last career interview I'm ever going to have. Or one of several more. And uh, he's like, what are you thinking? I'm like, well, what have we got? You know, I was, I was thinking maybe I could do a um, fixed wing exchange or overseas exchange. You know, I've, I've done my time. And he's like, well, he says, to be honest, mate, he says um, fixed wing ex- and the exchanges, all that kind of stuff. That's for real men who have been on operations, not for people who have been hiding away. So for you, mm, it'll be straight back to Pumas or you can leave and, and, and go uh, civilian. Maybe that would be something you think of. I'm like, yeah, okay. That's that'll be fine. So I think that meeting took two minutes. Wow! And this and is someone like, that you oh, were friends with before. Yeah, I mean that we weren't insane. close friends, but yeah, that's that's the military for you. And um, I'm like, okay, well that's that's choice made. Then I guess I'm I'm out of here. Um, and then there was a problem with the contract for the civilian search and rescue. It got delayed. So then the next. Um, uh, the next career manager came in and he said, how about a three-year extension to, to take you through to the privatization? I'm like, okay, sure. So I guess I'm not public enemy number one anymore. Um, so I take that and part of that deal was going to be, I was going to go to RAF Chivna uh, later that year. And um, I'd already done like four years at RF Valley at this point. So it's like, yeah, this is getting a strain on, on the marriage now. I'm away all the time. We're not seeing much of each other. I'm constantly traveling. This isn't great. Okay, we'll give you Chivna. Cool. So later that year, we went to New York for my wife's birthday and spoke to an immigration lawyer of like, right, just how do we do this? Let's start thinking about this seriously. Came back from there. Uh, was at a friend's party and he said, oh, the Canadians are looking at, at recruiting pilots. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then they pulled the, the Air Force pulled the rug on the Chivana posting and said, actually, it'd be better if you stay at Valley for the next three years. Oh, really? So 
uh, me and the missus sat down and we're like, what do you think, Canada? Should we roll the dice? It's like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's let's give it a go. Because no one really knew what was going to happen with the privatization of search and rescue. There's this persistent rumor that, you know, our hands would be tied. Uh, we wouldn't be able to do as much uh, as civilian search and rescue as we used to be able to do. And the, the job would change significantly. Turns out none of that's true. The, the guys and girls are stuck with it, doing a, a fantastic job. Um, so anyway, I applied to search and rescue. Oh, sorry, I applied to the Canadian military. And they came back and said, great. You can fly the, the Bell 412 in, uh, in a similar role to what I would have been doing with the Puma. And um, I was like, well, A, I've not flown that aircraft since training 20 years ago. And B, that's not really what I want to do. I, I kind of wanted to go on search and rescue. And they were like, well, ooh, I don't know if we want to give you that kind of thing. And uh, I just so happened to be on shift with William. And he's like, so actually, I know someone in search and rescue. You want me to speak to them? And I'm like, the bigger man would say no, but yes, please. I still need a track record. I need all the help I can yeah, get. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so I don't know what got said because the guy wasn't that senior, but he's quite influential. And I've, I've subsequently had a beer with him and he said, I'll never tell you what level of um, involvement like I had with William and all the rest of it, which I suspect he's saying, so I'll buy him more beers every time I see him. Like, so I feel like I'm in debt. He probably did bugger all. But uh, anyway, they, they came back around and said, okay, we'll offer you search and rescue in the RCAF. So that, that immediately made it a much better proposition. So um, I turned around, called my career manager. He would offer me the, the three-year extension. And he said, well, that was a waste of a three-year extension, wasn't it? And I'm thinking, not for me, it wasn't. <laughs> I, got, I got an extra year, so that's great. Um, and that was that. So, uh, so I left and, and came here. Brilliant. So, talk yeah. to when we think of um, a lot of our uh, pilots that work with EMS in the US. You hear, oh, I've heard at least that in the wildland side, amazing stories of Vietnam vets that you know even seen some of the, the video footage these incredible pilots that work on the ems side so again there you are you know war veteran now working with you know the air ambulance side so what was different about that versus all the different roles you'd had before yeah so um that's jumping ahead slightly i because I, I joined the canadian military so i went back to search and rescue there for another five years and then um, due to some health reasons and stress at work was why I finally transitioned out the, the military. Um, but yeah, it, it's very, very different, I would say, insofar as um, you're contracted for a, a job and they just want that job doing. So I almost have to rein it in from what I would have done with search and rescue, which is make it at any and all cost if you can, uh, safely, um, through to like, well, what's the percentage of us getting there? 50%. Oh, okay, we'll send a, a ground ambulance or, or whatever. So um, the go, go, go element has been removed to a degree. It's still important. We have an auto launch system here. So um, car crashes, uh, wilderness accidents, um, cardiac arrest, all that kind of stuff will generate an auto launch. And we'll go as fast as we can. Um, but everything else really is going to be a, a much more calm 
look at the facts and and can we actually achieve this this mission whereas search and rescue unless it was foggy outside would be running out the door and we'll figure it out on the way kind of thing right well i know again you talk about the the health issues and and you know with all that time flying with the stresses you know of of the the importance of your role in in the greater picture um you talk to me about some events that create a kind of domino effect on the mental health side as well yeah. so kind of walk me through that sure so um we'd obviously had like on the mental health side of things so i guess there's stuff bubbling away in the background that uh you come back from iraq um you know one minute you're in the desert the next minute you're in the shopping center going okay this is kind of weird when when we first went to um uh, Iraq uh, for three months. I didn't feel a solid floor under my feet. We were just on like boards and 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 sand. It's quite a weird experience. To then come back and put your feet on concrete. It's like oh, it feels strange. Um, and then going into search and rescue again. Like we had some pretty dicey um, incidents there, uh, including one that that we discussed before, and I'm sure we'll circle back around to, but, uh, um, an icing incident in the, in the mountains, which was pretty severe. And none of these things were resolved. Just, just none of it. I would just, you know, we'd just drive home and, and that was it and, uh, stiff up a lip and away you go. But now that I look back, I could see some personality changes coming through around that time that I just put down to, getting older and not really paying it much mind. Um, I came out to Canada. Now we've kind of stripped away our support network somewhat. It's just me and my wife. Um, and, you know, you make new friends, but they're not the same as your family and your, your, your old friends um, as you move forward. And um, it was busy times. The Canadian military isn't blessed with personnel. Um, so it tends to be pretty busy on, on shift. Uh, lots of working, not as many call outs. So um, you're always on this this knife edge of, of wanting to go and do something and very rarely actually flying and, uh, and achieving what you've been training for. You're, you, you're kind of always a bridesmaid, never the bride. A lot of turn backs because just the geography of, of, of Canada, you know, it's, it's freaking huge. So chances are you get halfway there, someone else got there first, see you later kind of thing. Um, and, uh, I did my upgrade again to, uh, aircraft commander. And, uh, in the middle of that, we had a, an actual rescue from a boat, which was cool. So we did this boat, we go to the bar and we enjoy ourselves because we've done a successful rescue. We're not on that night. Um, we're in the middle of this, uh, kind of upgrade ride and they like to, uh, see how you do after no sleep and a skimful of, of booze kind of thing, you know, can you still make some good decisions? Uh, and I got up the next day and I, I pooped blood and I'm like, that's not normal. Um, mid forties. Hmm. Interesting. And I thought, well, you know, I had, I had a bit to drink last night. So maybe that I've just aggravate, aggravate my stomach. And, and that's that, but it kept going and going and going and it's like all right i'm gonna have to go see the doctor i didn't do the classic man thing of like eh, this will blow over i mean it took me about 10 days but i still feel that's fairly quick for me um to go to the doctor and um they didn't have a clue so we go through various try this try that um 
in the meantime, like the, the need to go to the bathrooms accelerating. Um, so I remember shortly after I got upgraded, I'm like, great. Uh, we got called out in the middle of the night. It's going to be my first operational mission in Canada. Very excited. And uh, we get to this uh, really deep ravine. And um, I'm holding the hover in this ravine at night on MVG. Our two Sartex are down at the bottom. They're kind of hip deep in water. Um, the lady in question is of a larger sized lady. Uh, they're getting whacked by bugs. They're having a hard time. And I am clinching for all it's worth because I really need to go to the bathroom right now, but there's no chance. We've got people down 150 foot cable. You know, it was, it was an emotional moment of like, Oh shit, this is not how this normally is. So we get back from there, you know, go, go do the business and you're like, all right, this is, this is not great. So that story bumbled on and eventually they realized I had my own autoimmune disease in the shape of ulcerative colitis. Um, for those of you who don't know, just means you go to the bathroom a lot um, and you pass blood, you don't get your nutrients and all this kind of stuff. So then we went into the whole, like, can this be managed with medication? And the long story is the, the initial stuff, not really. You, you can slow it down, but you're never gonna reverse this. Um, so I'm starting to experience more sleepless nights than I, I normally would. I know in your book and on the podcast, you've talked a lot about sleepless nights and I'm, I'm right there with you. Shift work is, is terrible for this anyway. Uh, but now I'm having to get up three or four times in the night anyway to, to, to go to the bathroom. Um, there's no slowing down at work. I'm now picking up some neck and shoulder issues. It's all getting pretty painful. And, um, in the middle of that, in the desire to, to try and get this under control, I went to see a, a naturopath and um, we did some tests and it was decided that the best thing I could do is go dairy free. Um, it is a miserable experience trying to go dairy free. I'll tell you that um, because even chips have dairy product in them. It's fucking nuts when you actually start looking at the labels of things you're also that guy in the restaurant uh does your bun uh have milk in it please oh i don't know the the shot the store bought okay the, no no bun for me thanks I'll, uh do you want vegetables oh yeah or oh, do you put butter on the vegetables yeah okay well i don't want butter on the vegetables holy crap it's impossible to order it's it's a nightmare but i stuck with it and about the six week mark i actually started noticing a bit of a a bit of a an improvement, which I'm now, when I go back and subsequently what happened, I'm, I'm not entirely sure whether I was just seeing the medication finally kick in or whether I was seeing a, a, a true dietary um, improvement. Anyway, do that for a while, go back to my specialist. I'm like, hey, I've got this under control. I'm going to I'm gonna pretty much stop my meds. And she's like, okay. So I did. And then just before we were about to move from Nova Scotia to British Columbia by car, road trip it came back with a a vengeance and i mean a a vengeance and um i had to go and get scoped everything oh men's health is great james i'm very sorry <laughs> about this. this is this is probably taking a dark turn <laughs> no it's important too, though too too late now with there um so i was getting scoped every few months as a result and um you have to give yourself a bit of a a, a cleanse out down there before you you can go and I was due to drive a couple of hours to, to the hospital that afternoon. So I had to do a 
cleanse before you you go. And the feeling of the cold water hitting, I guess, what was now a very infected stretch of bowel put me down. It just put me down onto the, the bathroom floor. My wife came in and like she had to help me out of the bathroom onto the bed, to which I couldn't straighten out. And I'm like, we cannot drive. We can't go. That We're done. And she's like, no, you've got to. She basically manhandled me into the car and drove me to hospital with me, like, in so much pain, I was incapable of doing anything. Doctor takes a look. She's like, oh, crap, that's not good at all. Uh, I'm going to admit you to hospital. And it's like, you can't admit me to hospital. I've got this move coming up, like like two days. If I don't go, I'm going to lose this posting. This is what we want. You know, we, we, we were done with Nova Scotia. We wanted to get to Vancouver Island. Oh, I could try steroids. I'm like, give me the steroids. Give me the steroids. And um I mean, geez, what a difference they made. Um, like a couple of days before I tried to work out with, with my wife and I was shuffling around with this indoor running track, like a, an old man, I, I could barely lift a thing. And uh, I took the, the steroids and the next day, you know, I was turning cartwheels. It's like, holy crap, what a different person. But of course you, you can't stay on them. So it got me through the drive and I got to the next base and I, I keep going. And um, the new specialist is like, okay, the, the class of drugs you were on are not going to work for you anymore. You've become steroid dependent. Since you took those, that's, that's it. That's the only reason they're working. Oh, shit. So we have to go on to this class of drugs called biologics. All right. Well, I, I guess I better check like, back at base that, that we're good with this. And the specialist is like, honestly, mate, there's no other option. He's a South African and very blunt. Um He's like, no other option. We need to get going. I'm like, okay. So I go and see the military docs and they're like, cool. Second, you take those, you're done. You're out of the military. What? And it's like, yeah, because it affects your deployability. And it's like, I'm, I'm not deploying anywhere. I'm search and rescue. Like it doesn't affect me on search and rescue. Uh, yeah, we say it does. So you take those, you're done. Oh, shit. So we've just moved to a new place, just started a new job. Um, I'm weak as a kitten, can barely deal with this. My wife's freaking out. The stress is, is compounding at this point. Um, and that turned into a very long story. But basically, um, I ended up taking the um, biologics after holding off for months and months and months and not getting any better, no matter what I did. So it's like, all right, I'm going to have to put my health first. And in the middle of that, basically, my bosses decided that I'd be way more useful if they just posted me off somewhere else. Um, they wouldn't give me time to get better. They wouldn't give me time off to allow the new medication to, uh, to take a hold. None of that. There was no support whatsoever. But they were going to post me, which was even more stressful than, than in the middle of everything else I was doing. Uh, by this stage, I'm going to the, the bathroom 20 times a day, like through the day and night. Um, I lost about 16, 18 pounds because like, I just wasn't getting the nutrients anymore. It didn't matter what you eat. It passes through quick enough that you're not really getting anything. I'm like, okay, I, I need to do something else. And um, I'd met a guy at a party who was working for this company, Helijet who do the air ambulance side of things here. And about two days after my lowest point, he phoned me up and he said, when we were talking and you wanted to get out and fly for us, were you serious? I'm like, yes. 
He goes, well, I think there's a job coming up if you're interested. I'm like, yes. Um, so rather than wait and get a medical release, which was going to take two to three years, and um, you, you said that phrase earlier, victim mentality, and I think you've got to be so careful with, with health that it's so easy to transition into that victim mentality. And that's what I didn't want to do was like um, admit that I am like medically – useless for the military and please give me some scraps of things to do for three years while we figure out and then you'll pay me money and and, and thank you so much it's like no 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 I, i've got to take control of this i can't i can't just do that so i i chose to leave uh put my volunteer release in wasn't 100 percent sure that's what i was going to do at the time um i thought i was going to have a chance to break into my bosses no the second i put the paperwork in they told my bosses so the next thing I'm getting called into the head honcho's office and he gave me the full disappointed dad routine of like what a loser I was and how I needed to put the military uh, ahead of family and self. And I'm looking at this fucker thinking 22 years, man, 22 years, my wife, like at one point we thought she was dying and I was going to Iraq. You know, she's, she's been dragged all over the world. My health is failing as a result. I think I've put that first enough thanks and the guy was a dick like and offered me no kindness no how can we make this better how could we keep you and and that was it made my last they held me to six months which was miserable i couldn't fly i'm occupying a pilot's position so they couldn't the people left in the office are working harder because of me and i'm there every day to witness it um taking a drive into a place I didn't want to be to then have to do the hundred, hundred meter dash to the bathroom every few minutes. And it, it got to be a real low ebb, but, um, the postscript to that was a change medication. Uh, I got out, uh, I struggled to get an aviation medical because of all this going on. So I thought that was in the bag. And then we had another two weeks of like, I'm about to lose the new job having just lost the old job. But the company were great and, and worked with me, and and away we went. Things were changing for me, you know. I'm I'm kind of mid forties, and um, search and rescue was something that that I loved. You know, I I still miss it to a degree to this day. It, it I connected with it in a way that I didn't connect with the kind of battlefield helicopter side of things. I I really found my niche with with search and rescue, which is why I kept going, and. I was reaching a, an age, uh, what was I around then? I was probably about 45-ish, something like that, realizing that I probably couldn't do this forever at some point. You know, the, these kind of sleepless nights and um, long missions and all the rest take their toll, and, and, and maybe it's time to look at something else. But when it's taken away from you, it's very different. And, and suddenly there was a bunch of conversations with doctors saying, you're leaving the military or – you're leaving the military and you'll never fly again. And suddenly, even though I always felt like I didn't just identify as a pilot from the Air Force, suddenly it's like, well, what else am I going to do? So it started to be quite a rough year because physically I was getting um, noticeably weaker um, because I was holding off on the medication trying to get stuff done. So I'm not a huge athlete, but uh, we would go into CrossFit classes and stuff, and I couldn't do it. I wasn't 
I wasn't getting anywhere with it. I was just getting progressively weaker, turning up to these classes and, and struggling. So that's a bit of a blow to your pride. Um, and then like uh, the next thing was riding my bike. Suddenly like that was starting to be taken away from me that um, going out into the forest on the mountain bike was was hard to do. So again, it's another blow to your pride, all with this background of complete uncertainty of, of, of what's going on. So um, it was stressful for my wife as well. So we, we I figured, well, I, I probably need to go and talk to someone. I'd never been in that position before. Stiff up a lip, you know, Brit. Uh, we, we, we don't talk about our feelings, heaven forbid. Um, so I went to see a counselor on base. And uh, I'll never forget because I kind of laid it bare what was going on. And then we kind of related some of the incidents that happened through my career. And at the end of it, it's like, hey, well, the good news is you don't have PTSD. It's like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, no big deal, I guess. So that went on. And I spoke to that guy for the, for, for the best part of a year. And then suddenly I'm out of the Air Force and okay. Uh, lost access to that. But all right, that was the, the stress of was leaving and, and, and losing my identity to a degree and all that kind of stuff. So I've moved on now. It's fine. Well, um, a really good friend of mine who's a SARTEC moved into the village earlier last year and we started riding together and uh, he's been going through some stuff and, and we've been talking a lot about it on the rides. And the penny kind of dropped that maybe I wasn't over this at all, that some of the stuff that was going on in my life and some of the, the things that were happening to me was sounding a lot like what he was going through. And I said, well, you know, this guy said I definitely didn't have PTS. And he's like, that's bullshit. Like, that guy is paid by the military and also cannot make that diagnosis. Huh. That's kind of interesting. So um, I decided that, okay, I'll go through Veterans Affairs and get myself checked out because, like, it's a nice uh, little pension if you've got anything mental going on and, and I'm okay. So, you know, no big deal. Um, well, geez, like things were starting to add up outside of, of uh, work and at home. And I definitely wasn't feeling myself anymore. There was quite a lot of um, warning signs looking back at it now. And I sat down with a psychologist and we went through the test and it wasn't the questions I was expecting. And the questions that he was asking, I was all like, Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Oh, shit. And then you <laughs> realize that there's a name for, for what's been going on. So um, I got diagnosed with uh, PTSD and like a relatively mild form, I would still say that, that there's things that uh, bother me, but it's not like screaming nightmares, faces of uh, murdered children or things like that, that some people have it way, way, way worse than me. But it was interesting that there was like a physical component that that brought me there too because even though i got the colitis resolved um i've been dealing with a lot of um, neck and shoulder pain that came from a, a lifetime of flying as well and um that was probably the final straw was that kind of chronic pain finally kind of brought me to my knees and a realization that everything wasn't okay that there's something going on and it's time to address this so with the colitis as well, in in hindsight, knowing that the gut is about 80% of the immune system and they have the, the gut brain, um, you know, and the, the impact of stress on gut health, for example, 
when you look back now, do you kind of factor that in as far as far as kind of being caused again by the stress of the job? Almost definitely, James. Um, these autoimmune diseases are, are pretty strange and a bit of a, they're not a new phenomenon, but they're certainly more of it, they're more prevalent. Um, my specialist, when I moved to BC, um, says he sees more incidences of this in in Canada than anywhere else in the Western world. So he's got a theory of something in the flora and fauna, something in the food chain. Um, but to, to kind of finish off the journey of um, colitis, eventually I did get put on to the right medication and it has been a real success story. So that, that started when I left, but uh, when I left the Air Force, um, I just started this new medication and things were moving in the right direction, but weren't great. Well, earlier this year, you know, we looked at, at blood work and um, the indicator for um, autoimmune that's normally through the roof had gone to below trace level. Um, and he said, you know, I've never seen anyone respond quite so well on the medication. And I think your change of circumstances and reducing stress were a, a big part of that. And it's like, yeah, I, I do feel like, I mean, I hadn't resolved all my stress, but I'd actually taken quite a lot away when I when I transitioned out and came to terms with it. It was a difficult first year for sure. Um, but once I came to terms with that, then like I think the reduction in stress has actually been huge for me. Well, it's interesting as well because one of the other elephants in the room is organizational stress. So we'll get to some of the kind of war stories in a second. But if you know people listening kind of pay attention Every time there was kind of like a, a dip, a low point, it was always through some sort of organizational, um, you know, uncaring or whatever the right description is. And, and that's what I see in the fire service. You, know, you get a lot of very, very passionate responders, soldiers, you know, whoever um, listening to the show, I think, because we all want to make the world better and we want to make ourselves better. And you hear the same thing, like, I'm trying to make it better and no one wants to hear it. Everyone pushes it back, you know, tells me to sit down, shut up. You're making me look bad, all this stuff. So to then leave an organization, whether forced or not, I had the same thing when I transitioned to doing this full time and took a huge leap of faith. When people say the weight off my shoulders, I mean, it was absolutely literal. The next day I woke up and was like, I don't have to answer to any of those fucking idiots anymore. And I can truly now you know, forge my own path in the world. So I can see yep. how that element would be incredibly healing for you. 100%, James. Like, very interesting use of terminology there because, yeah, it was that organizational stress. So, like I say, I, I dearly loved um, UK search and rescue. I, I still think as a model for how to do it, it's definitely got to be up there for for like a, a model to show the rest of the world of like, this is what you could have. It's, it's pretty phenomenal really, but it relied heavily on the goodwill of the people involved. Um, I worked a 48 hour shift once we would normally work 24 hours. I handed over to the oncoming crew. I went to the beach to go surfing and uh, I came back from that and uh, my phone's ringing so i've been out of work maybe an hour and a half something like that and it's like yeah this guy's gone sick and there's no one else can you come back in and it's like yes because search and rescue is that important and i'm holding the line let's do this and you just work that shift without realizing that yeah like this would have 
would have broken if it wasn't for the goodwill of people. And that that's one story that came again and again and again. And we always used to say, well, we should let it fail. We should let it fail and people can see what's actually going on and they've got to do something about it. But you can't. It doesn't You're work. passionate. No, you've got into that job for a reason. And the thought of stepping back and not being on standby that day and potentially letting people die is like, you can't. And like as I as I went further through search and rescue, it's like cynical fuckers because this is it's just like, yeah, we've got a motivated group of people that we can give them the, the shitty end of the stick and they'll just lap it up because they'll just keep pushing themselves or keep going. Um, like it, it made me laugh when I came to, to Canada, you know, um, the, the commanders would call search and rescue a no fail mission. It's a no fail mission, which is complete bullshit as like four out of five aircraft were broken or some days all the aircraft broken. Oh, and the way that we're running the shift plot for the rear crew is smoke and mirrors. Like this guy can't afford to be called out on a mission that night because he has to work tomorrow. Well, how does that work? Why aren't we like, what happens to this no fail, no fail mission? Like you need to suck it up and work harder. It's like, I'll suck it up and work harder if you support me from above too, but they don't want to. And it's, it's heartbreaking to see. And, and I realize you reach a point that you've either got to, Accept you're going to drive yourself mad and drive yourself into the ground by trying to improve it or stop giving a shit. And if you stop giving a shit, it's time to leave because you shouldn't be there anymore. So it's really hard. It sucks. It sucks everything out of people and then goes, see you later. And it, it's, it's hard. It, it's hard to tell people like going into these careers that this is your future. It's just the machine's going to grind you up and spit you out one day and not give a shit whether you turn left or right when you leave the main gate for the last time. You know, No one cares. And it, it's heartbreaking. It absolutely is. And the thing is, when when I listen to some of the conversations I have, it's kind of like, oh, man, this is you know the kind of doom and gloom dark side. But the reality is everyone, pretty much everyone wearing a uniform is doing it because they care. And you see that, you know, in volunteer firefighting in the U.S. Like there are people that are volunteer firefighters in suburban areas with a very high tax tax bracket, but they're like, well, they'll do it for free. So you know, let's just buy, you know, yep. buy them a fire engine every three years and don't tell anyone, and we should be good. And it's it's horrific. And as you mentioned, all the the millions of dollars that put that missile on that go herder could have funded so many first responders could have made sure that all the helicopters were were maintained in a search and rescue capacity and that is the thing it's not like we want more money it's just there's such a misappropriation of funds and there's areas that we absolutely waste money like the war on drugs for example i mean that's a billions of dollars wasted you know chasing addicts and putting them in a in a concrete yep. box to make people yeah. that own prisons rich you know so um but it is and it's and the problem is is that we do care and we will show up and you see that over and over again they're they're firing firefighters and cops over mandates and then who do you think's filling the gaps other firefighters and cops that happen to get the vaccine or whatever they're not bringing in all these new people that they've trained and they're you know supplementing and the same with covid the NHS, you saw, oh, you know, how, how do you, how do you bolster the NHS? Oh, we'll just get outside and clap. That, that should fix it. 
I, you know? I had such a problem with that. Too. <laughs> it's like, okay, everyone's banging pots and pans for two weeks until they stop giving a shit about banging pots and pans. And it's like, why aren't we talking about pay raises and standards of work? Like, why aren't we getting these people the deal they deserve? And it's like, well, it's easy if we just bang pots and pans and then everything's good, right? It's like, fuck you. Exactly. And now, and now we're getting the ripple effect where all these people, and not just responding, you know, the people that were in any capacity that kept the world moving while everyone else hunkered down in their homes, 18, 20 months later, now we've really got to take care of them. And we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing law enforcement drag through the dirt. We're seeing responders and doctors and nurses being fired because they didn't have a vaccine. So it's, it's a, you know, giant fuck you at the end. Yeah. And the thing is, the reason why these conversations are important is because you and I care. And we care about the men and women that are sitting in those seats right now. And it's just pulling the curtain back and saying, look, this could be amazing and you should be, you know, supported financially. You should have the equipment, the training, the rest periods to make this because this is the best job in the world. Search and rescue, fire, yep. paramedic, amazing oh, yeah, career. All the same. But Fantastic. That job can be made miserable if the employer is not justifying the courage and service of the men and women that work under them. And that's the conversation. It's not about the profession. It's not about the people in the uniform. It's the people that, you know, quote unquote lead or lack thereof your profession, my profession, and the knock-on effect of that killing us, our brothers and sisters, and the men and women that we serve in our communities. Absolutely. Yeah, that, it, it's always upset me, James, that, to, to not get the patient care right at the tip of the spear. And we'd see this again and again, you know, like, so I go back to when I was in, uh, in Wales, our local mountain rescue teams were fantastic. And if they had a, a call, more often than not, they'd call us direct and say, hey, we're about to ask for you um, so you can get ready. It's like, great, go for a nervous pee, get my kit on, stand by the phone, ring, ring, call to the mountains. Okay, great, let, let's go. So we were there in super quick time, and we had that person off the mountain, done, into hospital, fantastic. Well, like other mountain rescue teams didn't work that way. You know, they're volunteer organizations, and they lose sight of, of what they're doing sometimes. And it's like, if we complete the rescue, we can put that on our website, into our literature, look at what we've done. So what they would do is then spend all day trying to, you know, and, and nothing against Mountain Rescue. They are fantastic, but they're slow at times. And they spend all day on some technical rescue, of, of slowly getting someone down off that mountain until they realize that this isn't working great. Maybe we do need help. Then they'd call for us. Now we're turning up and the weather's shitty and it's dark and everything that would have taken five minutes is now going to take an hour. Everything's compounded. And eventually we get it done. And it's like, we've got to put politics and pride and everything else aside. What is the best thing for this person right now on a cold, wet, shitty uh, hillside? Are they going to be pleased that they got bounced down in that kind of mountain rescue stretcher, or are they going to be pleased that it took 10 minutes to hospital in a helicopter? And that, you know, egos, like notwithstanding, like for that patient, it's going to be better if we get them off the hill fast. And we see it again and again. And I, I came across to um, 
Canada and uh, you come with high hopes. You're like, okay, I've got all these great ideas. And I'm going to share the, the wealth with you guys. So um, we have search and rescue technicians in the back of the Cormorant, uh, two of them as a team. And um, the first person that goes down normally gets the ship battered out of them against the boat, against the trees, whatever it is. We've got terrible downwash. When they're there, they then put a, a rope up, and the second person who comes down is guided down by the first and has a much easier time. And I'm like, hey, well, we've got a solution for this because in the UK, we only had one winchman, Sartag, and we would throw the rope down to the, the crew of the boat, and we would get them to perform the same thing. So we can do that. It's literally $20 worth of rope and a bag of lead shot. That's it. Well, I left after five and a half years, and we still didn't have that system in place. Uh, one of the Sartek leaders was on my side, and we kind of made it ourselves and was using it, but it was all unofficial. No one wanted to staff it. No one could see the value. Well, we don't need to do it like that. It's like the rest of the world do it this way. Why are you different? Why are we risking men and women and like with injuries before they even get to start doing their job when we could simplify it for the case of $20? And it's like, oh, no, no. And I think people are so used to being told that they're the best, that we're, we're the best, is you almost then can't take advice or help from anyone else because it, it shows that maybe you're not the best. And um, it, it's a sad way to be. You know, it, It's such a shame. We could all learn so much from each other. That's why I think this is a, a great project of like so many ideas in one place. Um, that's, what, that's what I find really appealing about it because people don't fucking listen. It's like, why are we relearning these exercises, the, these lessons? You know, there's a better way of doing this. Well, it's not my way of doing it, so I'm not, I don't care. It's like, ah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's something I've talked about a lot here and you know, people listening that they listen often and probably, you know, be thinking like, well, we should just shut up about this. But I don't remember England when I lived you know, at home, everyone beating their chest saying, we're the best country in the world. But in America, that slogan is thrown around a lot. And there's a difference between pride. Everyone should have pride in where they're from and their culture. And sure. But you've also got to have humility. And when you start saying you're the best, I mean, basically it's narcissism. It's national narcissism. And Absolutely. as soon as you say you're the best, you're basically saying, I don't want to learn from anyone else. Now in the fire service, that's the, the worst thing you can do as you know, the phrase goes the moment you think you know everything it's time to retire and absolutely right but yet as a nation we do the polar opposite and I've had people on here you know going with the NHS I love the NHS philosophy the Norwegian prison models the the Finnish education system the Portuguese drug policy there are countries out there that have proven that they're doing things better and I see that in the fire service and you have two departments that butt up against each other that are reinventing the wheel on their own instead of just knowledge sharing things that work really really well and it is it's absolutely maddening because all that effort people spend on trying to make themselves look like they made everything up you could all learn from each other and every single fire department or every single hospital or whatever it is can all rise up together sharing each other's great ideas mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the the words that used to strike terror into my heart in the military was center of excellence. Whenever anyone said they were turning something into a center of excellence, it was like time to get the fuck away from there because it was going to be the opposite. It was just going to be a shit show of people going where the best. And it's like, no, 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 no. Let's let's have some humility. Let's let's go learn how other people are doing business because I bet they've got some great ideas that we could incorporate, you know? Well, it's funny because our uh, National Firefighters Union's mental health facility that's just one facility in the northeast of the country is called the Center of Excellence. So I'm just going to leave that right there. (laughs) (laughs) There are some great centers all over, you know, again, great organizations all over the country, but they're siloed again. You know, I think as a national union, we should have, you know, community and and again, everyone kind of joining, joining forces with the best ideas. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to kind of pull you into one of your war stories and then we can kind Mm -hmm. of taper off from there. Um, But you mentioned earlier about the icing. And when we spoke before, that seemed like that was probably one of the scariest times you've had in a helicopter. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Undoubtedly, James. And, uh, you know, this is probably, you know, one of the first real steps in the, the chain along the the, the, the downward spiral of mental health, you know, like this, this, this was probably an unresolved issue. So um, I'd not been on search and rescue that long. So um, I had a couple of thousand hours in the Puma. So I certainly wasn't a, a new pilot, but I was new to search and rescue. So I was acting as the co-pilot this night. And um, it was an unusually bad winter in Wales. Um, you know, th- this was kind of into... I think this end of December, start of January. I'd have to look at my logbook, but it's probably around January 24, um, uh, about two, 2010, January 2010, something like that. I, I'd, I'd remembered uh, driving back to Lincolnshire in like a complete whiteout, trying to get out of Wales. You know, the heavy snow, it was, it was quite unusual. And um, I guess that was the uh, signal for everyone to dust off their toys that they didn't use very often. So uh, our casualty was an ice climber in uh, in the devil's kitchen. So obviously uh, whales and ice climbing are perhaps not synonymous within uh, the community. Um, So I'm sure there was some ice and this guy's like, I'll dust off this ice axe that's been sat under my bed that someone bought me as a Christmas present six years ago and like, how hard could it be? Um, <laughs> so uh, away they went. And um, um, something that uh, you, you was asking me uh, earlier about um, uh, medevac. So I'm sorry, I'm on a slight tangent here, James. But no, go for it. Um, whenever we were called on, like whenever we're called now, we're just asked if we can do a job. So can we go from A to B, pick up at B, fly to C, come back to A? And that's all we're told, like, can we do it? So we can clinically coldly assess the weather and daylight and everything else and go yes or no. On search and rescue, and probably much like you got for your call outs in the, in the fire department, we're told what it is. So we're told things like this guy has got a broken femur and that's what we were told. So we would spend all day as a crew, 24 hours a crew. So um, more often than not, you'd go and look over the paramedic shoulder at some point during the day because there's only so much flying you can do. And, hey, tell me more about this. And I got a bit of a medical background from from talking to the guys. You know, you, you get a, a clearer picture of what's serious and what isn't. So a broken femur, 
obviously pretty serious. So the Saturday, Saturday evening, off we go, and it's snowing heavily. And uh, to me, like new to search and rescue, and the winchman uh, was also pretty new to search and rescue. Um, again, we're both experienced helicopter guys, but new in this role. And we brought up a few times, like, this weather seems kind of below limits here. And uh, the captain and the um, uh, winch operator is also our um, squadron boss. He was, they were like, no, 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 this is, this is fine. So it's like, okay, maybe we just need to man up. You know, maybe we're new to search and rescue and, and, and this is what it's all about. Um, less of the bedwetting. That's, that's for sure. Like, um, so we, we tried, uh, we, we tried for a long time to, to get to this, this climber and we really struggled getting it through the weather and we eventually got there and we put down the winchman and he didn't have crampons with him and he was about two meters short of the casualty and just could not get to the casualty. Just, he just couldn't safely cross these rocks. Oh shit. Okay, well, now we've got to go back and refuel and mountain rescue teams who were on scene, you're going to have to bring that patient lower. Now, they had a doctor on the team and a paramedic. So although this guy was going to have a very long, shitty night of, of being taken down the mountain, he did have good care with him. Um, but I found this phenomenon on search and rescue that, that once you've been doing it for a while – and once you had enough successful rescues under your belt, um, the Superman effect took over. Um, you became a, a pocket superhero and no job too tough. You know, we're, we're, we're going to complete this. Um, I was told very early on that, that the hardest thing you'll ever do as a search and rescue captain is say no. And it's true. Um, and we can talk about that later. But saying no was actually very difficult for, for so many reasons. So we go back, we refuel, we wait for them to, to take them down, and we, uh, we reposition to the mountain rescue hut. So we're looking up at the Devil's Kitchen, and for those of you that don't know uh, anything about it, it's basically like a big bowl uh, feature. So you can have cliffs on three sides, um, a few hundred feet high, a uh, big climbing area in, in Wales. And um, we could watch the head torches coming down and, and coming down. We're very intent now on, on getting this thing done. The weather's improved somewhat. So cool. And finally they radio and say, right, we've got him. We've got him where we think you can get him. Okay, great. So uh, we flew into this bowl. And um, if you could imagine the climbers on the, on the right-hand side of the aircraft, and we're facing into the rest of the bowl. So now on three sides of us, it's cliffs. The only area that's clear is behind us. And um, uh, the, the captain was in the right, was flying the, the actual um, winch uh, rescue. And we are just recirculating snow around us. So I can't really see anything in the left-hand seat. I'm still on night vision goggles. He's uh, come off night vision goggles for the, the hoist. We used to put white light on everything. That's how we did it. And he starts to transition away. So we've just got the casualty on board and we're just transitioning away from the, the scene and he hands me control. And as he hands me control, what we hadn't realized is that weather cloud uh, had moved in from behind us and the rest of the ball was out in cloud. We were sat in the last bit of clear air. So as I took control, by the time I blinked, I am now completely in cloud 
heading towards the back of uh, this bowl feature, cliffs hundreds of feet uh, uh, above us on three sides and not a fucking clue as to what to do next because it's like, oh shit, we should have talked about this. We didn't talk about this. We got so fixated on just getting this guy out and it looked like the hard work had been done and this was just going to be the final grab and go, no big deal. And I was, I knew I had to turn left, so I just turned left and um, my balls crawled into my throat is the only way I can describe it. Like the skin crawl was like, I think like my feet were sucked up my arsehole by the time I'd finished getting around because it felt like physically I wanted to get away from the, the cliffs. We're going to hit any second. And as we're coming around and like I've called, we're inadvertent IMC, so inadvertently gone into uh, cloud. The uh, winch operator got back in his little office uh, with his radar and everything, and he said, come north now. So, okay, I'm still coming left. So we, we, we come, we roll out, we're heading north now. So it's like, thank fuck. Problem one is solved. We didn't hit the cliffs. Problem two is now we're, we're in cloud. We can't descend down because we don't know how far it extends, so we have to go up. So there's a range of mountains we're heading towards, and we've got to get to 5,600 feet. Okay, so we start going up. Cool. Maybe this isn't going to go so badly after all. And uh, as we're going up, uh, we had this um, instrument in the helicopter called the, the cruise guide indicator. And I'm still not sure why it was called that, but it basically showed stresses through the, the head, through the rotor head. And um, this thing sat at uh, 5% at its worst day, and the limit on it was 30%. So as we're going up, it came off the stops. Like, okay. And it started to rise 5, 10, 15. And I'm thinking, well, this is odd because like, I've never seen it move before. Is it broken? No, it's, it's us. And we were picking up ice now um, because we were pretty wet from all the snow and everything else. So as we get higher, it gets colder. We're getting more and more iced up until we got to 5,600 feet, but our climb had slowed down. Uh, it went from a climb into a descent. The cruise guide indicated got to 100%, of which the limit was supposed to be 30. And I heard a noise behind me that just sounded like tortured metal. It's like when you're when that bit of metal is about to give out on your car's thing, it's like, it's like, oh, shit. And um, at that point, the captain stopped pulling more power. He doesn't remember doing it, but I'm pretty sure that saved us. Because uh, I think if we'd have just kept pulling power, the head would have just gone, okay, and just come away from the helicopter. Um, and then basically, we watched the, um, the altimeter wind down. And I'm thinking, huh, shit. And th this would be the time for a clever, witty... Uh, thing to say, you know, get your last words on tape. No, no, I, I had absolutely nothing. And uh, we're sat in cloud on goggles. So I've got two little, you know, gray, uh, cir or green circles in front of me with nothing else to see, just thinking, huh. And um, we went down uncontrollably. The, uh, the boss in the back, he put out a mayday call, uh, which is as serious a call as it gets in, in, in aircraft. And, um, 
we we got to about 500 feet above the ground we we came out of cloud and the thing shook itself like a dog coming out of water uh the ice was shed we had control again and we continued on to the the hospital uh we landed and uh we got out and i was shaking pretty hard uh which i'm going to definitely attribute to the fact it was cold and i didn't have my jacket on and definitely not because like that was a a, a genuine near death experience and uh i remember i phoned uh, i phoned janine and she was out on the piss with her friends and before i could even start to explain what was going on she was in tears saying what the hell's going on what's happened she could just tell from the tone of my voice that that things weren't right um so that was it we we called ourselves done for the day um we got a taxi ride back from the hospital and, and came off state and then uh, the next day we went and picked the helicopter up brought it back the engineers had checked it out and they said it's all fine so we flew it back to base they pulled it into the hangar and then the next day they'd, they'd found uh, four to six inch uh, delaminations of the rotor blades where they'd started to break up in flight wow. so so that was fun yeah <laughs> so so when with the the knowledge of you know the the physics behind you know what you do for a living how do you describe that descent being iced up and then that miraculous shift right before you hit the ground yeah i mean it, it did what it should have done i guess you know one, once we came out of cloud and it warmed up it warmed up sufficiently that the ice had time to to shed um but had we been in it for a few seconds longer the, the blades were starting to break up. Um, had we pulled harder at the at the top of the climb to try and stop it descending, something would have given out, and and like whatever that was would have been irrecoverable. You know, there, there, there would have been no coming back from it. So, um, obviously, sheer skill and um, just the brilliance and good looks of the crew involved that, that, that survived us there. But one could also say a bit of luck, which there probably was really. Um, it was a really unfortunate chain of events that, that ended well, but wouldn't have, you wouldn't have had to change much on the variables for that to have been like it, irrecoverable really. And, um, I, I think we all talk about like near death experiences, you know, like you step out into the road and the car whizzes by. It's like, oh shit, yeah, I could have died there. But I think there's something different from those fleeting moments to when you have time, actual genuine time to appreciate the situation you're in and appreciate that there was no way out. At that point, it all depended on where the cloud base was. That, that, that was the only factor. We had no say in that whatsoever. There was nothing we could do at that point to change that. That was purely weather-related, and we got away with it. Crazy. Now, just as a tangent, was it a helicopter that Kobe Bryant and his, his daughter and the other family died in? That's right, yeah. Okay, so just, I mean, this is a total from left field question, but when you kind of read about that, do you remember kind of as an operator yourself kind of figuring out what the underlying cause was? Because it seems like we lose so many yeah. people to light aircrafts, to helicopters. I I, I mean, like the, the accidents uh, being investigated. So, you know, it, it, it's easier to cast shade and all the rest of it. But it read like self-induced pressure on the pilot to get Kobe where he needed to be. 
And I think people forget that sometimes you can say no and you can turn around. It doesn't matter who they are. And you say, look, the, the weather's not suitable. And it, it wasn't. And um, the guy didn't really fly in, in cloud very often. And I think he pushed it and hoped that he would get away with it. And then when he went into cloud, he lost references and um, the situation like went south rapidly. Uh, from that point, he wasn't he wasn't going to get away with it. So I think it's the classic pushing it. Like ever since that night, anyone that talks about like, oh yeah, there's some icing, but it's okay, or you know, I know what the weather's doing. It's like bullshit, bullshit. No, you don't. Like the weather. If there's any doubt, there should be no doubt. Like, but it it's so easy to get self-induced pressure to, to push on. And, and again, such a rescue is a classic for that. Um, uh, slight tangent on, uh, on another story. Um, and, uh, and this one was with, uh, with William actually. So we get called to a four-year-old with a head injury. Oh shit. Head injury. That, that sounds terrible. So we, we, we get heading into the hills and uh, just before we get there, they call us and they said, oh, no, no, it's a hip injury. And it's like, well, that's still pretty bad. Pelvic area, you know, all that blood loss. Holy shit. So we, we push into the mountains and um, William was flying. I was I was in the left. And uh, it was like there was a force field around the mountains of Snowden. Of, it was like a snow globe of snow and shit and corruption within the mountains. Everywhere else was okay. So we go in there, we get hammered, like we're getting hammered on that mountain flying. I'm like, ah, we haven't got a lot of power. I said, I'll tell you what, let's let's give ourselves the best chance. We came, we came back out, we dumped a thousand pounds of gas straight into the ocean. Take that Earth Day. You know, I'm I'm gonna have to turn a lot of lights off in my lifetime to to atone for that. But this kid's in a bad way, you know, we've 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 got to get there. And uh, we go back in and it was a gnarly uh, approach into this shitty little landing spot and and william's a, a rock star so yeah he's, he's he's doing that no big deal and i'm sat in the left hand seat and i'm looking out and there's a paramedic holding this kid in his arms it's like well i'm not a paramedic but i'm pretty sure like a hip injury shouldn't be tret like that oh no he had a lip injury and um, his dad, I guess, had called for help and the paramedic had driven a streetcar. And I mean, like a, a shitty little tidy Peugeot kind of thing with, with basic summer tires on. It'd gone down this farmer's track, steep one with snow on the ground and couldn't get back out. So it called for um, a helicopter and somewhere in the, in the loss of like communication that turned into a kitty with a head injury that needs search and rescue. And like, it's like, holy shit, we just risked ourselves. We just like dumped gas into the ocean. <laughs> just killed a and bunch of fish. What? Yeah, you know, no big deal. But this kid, like whether he gets to hospital in 10 minutes or 10 hours, the outcome's the same. He's going to have a little scar on his lip. And that's it, you know? So it, it's so easy that that self-induced pressure, you know, like to, to push, 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 push. And it's not always the right answer. Yeah. Well, and like you said, that that saying no or just taking it back and, you know, as you said, the times where you it was the right thing to do to fly to, you know, to do the hoist initially from the mountain rather than do some sort of repelling, um, you know, uh, system or whatever. I'm, I'm blanking on the word now. Um, operation. There we go. Um, but it's, I had the reverse in my last apartment. They 
you know, was protecting a local theme park, so they love to land the helicopter. Oh, we'll fly them out, we'll right. fly them out. And sometimes I'm like, our trauma center is 15 minutes away. You're going to wait there and package and find an LZ and, and then land them and then get them up. And then, as one of my, my nurse slash medic friends pointed out, then you guys land on the, on the roof usually. Mm-hmm. So then you got to get off the helicopter in elevators. And so a lot of times I would tell them, no, just get them in the back and we're going to drive. Oh, but it's traffic. And that's, that's the thing that that's when you got to put your big boy pants on, you know, take off your little sheet from your bedwetting episode. Because yeah, that's what the hard shoulder, the opposing lane, yep. that's what they're there for. You got to drive safely. But yes, this is not, you know, we're not at Disney anymore. This is, this is the real world and you've got to get this kid. And if, if the road is the best way, the road is the best way. If the air is the best way, the air is the best way. But as you said, if neither of those are a safe option and you might kill the patient and or the crew, well, then that's another decision where, no, we can't go at the moment. What can we do on scene? Can we bring a doctor here? You know, so you have to think around that. But absolutely, I agree with you 100%. The hardest thing to do is to say, no, it's not safe. And same with a fire, you know, fire no, blowing absolutely. out. Oh, we're aggressive. No, no one in there is alive. So no. you're not going in. Um there was a, a U.S. Coast Guard exchange pilot when I was um, on the Cormorant Squadron in Nova Scotia. I, and I can't remember his exact phrase, but he basically said every every mission, you know, starts with you um, rescuing your own crew, basically. Was, was that effect was like, you know, that's that's how it should be. You know, the, the most important people you bring back is, is those. I, and when I moved into training, Uh, that was something I did try to impress upon people was like no missions worth your life. It just isn't, you know, like the, the people you're flying with, they're the people, you know, they're your friends. They're the ones that are relying on you to put their lives at risk just to do some like rock star uh, save because your ego's got the better of you and like, Oh yeah, we can get this done. You know, this is what we do. No fail mission, all this other bullshit. It's like, there'll be another way. And if there isn't, I'm sorry, it wasn't that person's day. You know, it's it, it sucks to be them, but how is their death going to be improved by the death of four or five other people in a burning helicopter sat beside? And and some people would lose sight of this. It's like no, no, no. That that that's like the the way we're effective is when we go home and are able to reset for the next thing. We're not effective if we break the machine or get stuck in bad weather or like heaven forbid crash it you know that's we're we're not we're not doing our job yeah and you see that with the the intersection wrecks you know the the emergency vehicles blowing through now i personally think the sleep deprivation is probably behind some of those that they literally have micro sleeps and end up blasting into a minivan full of kids but there's other times you know i know especially crews that race each other from different stations you know where that is the case and then there's a there's a really bizarre kind of needle dick philosophy at the moment where they poo poo against clean cab you know taking off your gear wiping down your skin oh that's going to stop you from rescuing well as you said if you leap off a fire engine the moment you get there and run into a burning building you haven't done any assessment you haven't done triage of what's the most important thing is there even a life safety issue you know is is that building going to collapse and it's going to kill everyone that runs in but you're so busy doing that between taking selfies for Instagram and, and belittling things that is definitely going to kill firefighters, the carcinogens in our, our gear, that there's this kind of little, I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It's like this needle dick group of shamers that are lighting fire to that. 
you know, it's for them, you risk, you know, risk everything. It's like, no, 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 it's, it's slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Assess, make a good decision. Some, you know, when it's time to go, fucking go. That's when you be aggressive. But when it's time not to go, have the balls to not go. And that's, I think that's a very, very important, um, you know, perspective to have. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. So with your journey, you said about the icing definitely being a significant one. Kind of walk me through if, if there were any others that were really jarring for you. And then, and then, and then you mentioned about the diagnosis. You know, what were you experiencing personally? So, I think it was just a um, a slow buildup of things that that I think everyone in the first responder um, community experiences. You know, it was things like that. Um, okay, near death experience, but quite regularly we would be hovering in a cloud with our you know blade tips mere feet from the the cliff, and you're like, well, this is awesome. I'm such a good pilot. Until you stop and think about it, they fuck me. This is really dangerous. You know, this this doesn't take much for this to turn into something ugly. So you would have lots of that. Um, there's a few of those. Like we turned down, you turned down a mission knowing that when I turned down a mission now on medevac, there's probably a streetcar involved or a fire or some other way of transporting that patient. Um, search and rescue, you did have, there was a real possibility that people were going to die as a result of you saying no. And then several other calls that realistically, you can't change the outcome, but you can't help but feel you could have changed the outcome if you had just been a little bit quicker, faster, smoother, better at what you did. Um, and it starts to chip away at you. I mean, we used to get called to drownings and uh, heart attacks a lot. And those two like calls would make my heart sink before I even went anywhere because the chance of us getting there and affecting the outcome were virtually nil. You know, like the, the drowners, um, actually, I've got a, a couple of stories, one good, one bad. But um, the, the one that sticks with me is... Um, it wasn't me, but some of the other guys went to a, a drowner. Um, it's like a 10-minute drive away from the base, so like a two- or three-minute flight. And uh, middle of summer, three pissed-up lads, uh, one decides to jump off the cliffs into the high sea, immediately gets into trouble. Second one jumps in to help him, immediately gets into trouble. Third one fortunately used his head and called for, for help. And uh, the guys fired up that helicopter in double quick time. You, you couldn't have done it faster. They got on scene. They were barely ready to, to hoist safely, barely. And um, I, I saw the footage because we used to carry a camera. And it was pointing straight down. And you could see one guy in the water um, quite clearly. Now, whether he was just below the water or just on the surface, it's hard to tell from the, the camera angle. But they put the winchman down, guy called Ed, fantastic fella, and he gets to within an arm's length of the survivor casualty. And a wave hits them both, and the guy is gone. And he surfaced 10 days later. You know, he was he was already probably toast at that point and, and going down. And they pulled the other guy off the cliffs, but he didn't make it. Um, it was a 
less than a 10-minute flight to hospital, and he died in the back of the, the helicopter. And that was about as close as you could have a drowning incident and still use a helicopter, and it still wasn't enough. Um, so whenever those things went off, it's like, oh, sinking feeling. To uh, bookend on that one, the happy story, though, um, we got sent to another one, and uh, it was William again, and it was a couple of jet skiers had come off the jet ski, uh, and I guess the kill switch had gone, but the jet ski had gone far enough away from them. There were a couple of not the healthiest gentlemen, should we say? You know, they, they'd gone for a rip on this thing, massively overdue. Their wives worried, put out the call, and um, basically they they came off the jet ski. The the kill switch like operated, but the wind was taking it faster than they could swim to it. They just weren't fit enough to catch back up with it. So they'd been in the water for hours and apparently we flew straight over them on the way to the search area. And uh, they watched us come and go and without us noticing them and made their peace with each other, they were kind of, you know, giving each other a hug and, and that's it. They were, they were more or less done. And we started our search and someone on shore said, no, 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 they're, they're, they're over here and, and pointed us in a different direction. And we'll, we took a look over and we're like, no, 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 this is, we're wasting time. Let's go back to the, the search. And we're just going back to the search. And the, this guy's on shore with a pair of binos. He's adamant that he can see these, these people. So we, we fly back again. I'm like, no, 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 this is bullshit. Like, we're going back to the search area. And as we go back to the search area, Willem's like, there they are. It's like, holy shit. There they are, and we we turned around and we we got them both, and and they survived, and, and like that was very satisfying. They'd become they got very close to, to to death. They'd said their goodbyes and everything else, but um, yeah, more often than not, you got a lot of calls where you were being sent to people that were you probably weren't going to affect the outcome. And one of those really stuck with me is um, uh, I was training up another pilot, and uh, we went to a um, a a guy having a jammer on the side of the mountain and um, we hoisted him up and we took him to hospital and I was in the left-hand seat acting as co-pilot. So uh, Kate, the pilot, she was shutting down the aircraft and someone said, Oh, can you come back and, and help take this guy's wife off the machine? Sure. I'll do that. And that stayed with me. Like that guy had retired on the Friday. They'd gone for a hike up the mountain Saturday morning and he'd had a massive heart attack and, and died. And his wife got to watch 30 minutes of bystanders working on them, was hoisted into a helicopter, watched basically the sack of meat that, that used to be her husband. And the look on her face, that, that stayed with me. And it's things like that that, that start to chip away at your, at your soul. And then you, I'd drive home. So I wasn't staying on the base because like, we, we had a house in uh, Cornwall. So I'd drive home. And suddenly I'm away from everyone that understands what I've done and you're back in normal society and it's really hard to talk to people. You know, like you, you sat quietly at a dinner party and, and people are talking about something and then all you want to say is, oh yeah, well, you know, I just watched this guy turn into a slab of meat earlier or, you know, this kid got uh, drowned and we, we pulled out the body or this guy took a header off the cliffs bird watching, you know, who wants to talk about that? And of course, no one wants to talk about that. But so I kept it to myself and you, you bottle it up because you think I can't lay this on anyone. These are some miserable images that, that, that you get to collect. So instead I shoved it all out the way and um, 
I was surfing a lot at the time. So surfing was, was the main outlet, but looking back on it now, like some of the clues, there's some personality changes. I was finding myself crying at movies, like, and the most random movies where I used to be fairly stony faced. Janine would be like, what's up with you? I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm just feeling a bit, a bit down today, you know, no big deal. And then surfing would assume like greater and greater importance. You know, I'd, I wouldn't see my wife for eight days. I'd drive home and I'd want to go straight out, grab my board and, and, and head for the ocean. And it was keeping me sane, but I couldn't explain it that way because I wasn't telling her anything about what was going on. So then she's like, what the fuck? You know, we've not seen each other all this time and you just, you want to head out of the house. And it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> why can't you be more understanding? And it's like, why can't you be less of a dick? And it's like, good point, <laughs> you know? Um, but then surfing stopped being healthy because everything had to be done to a better standard than before. So I'd, I'd, I'd rush home, say hi to the missus, go straight out, piss her off, sit in the ocean for, you know, two or more hours, not having a good time because like I'm punishing myself. I'm not doing things as good as I could. I, I need to do them better. So I'd come home as grumpy as I was, if not more grumpy. Um, and, and, and we saw all these things happening, but I didn't pick up on anything at the time. You're just keeping it to yourself and thinking that you're keeping it together, you know. Um, and then we went to Canada partly so we wouldn't be apart a all the time. And you think, oh, okay, you know, no big deal. That's, that's that part of my life moved on. That's all addressed now. Of course it's not. And, and these things come out. And then the colitis, you know, that put me on a very low ebb. But I put that down to the colitis. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm physically ill and all this other stuff. But it was more than that. There was there was more going on. There was all these unresolved issues. And then um, moving forward, I noticed it again this year in the hyper and hypoactive feelings. And I couldn't settle when I was at home. So I worked two weeks on, two weeks off. And I would come home and be on edge. And uh, I'd set myself unrealistic goals. I'd overreact to the slightest thing and I'd be totally distracted and detached from my home life because I'm already worried about going back into the environment. And the thing that was bugging me was night shifts, you know, like night shifts took on a special meaning of their own after that night, um, icing up in the mountains and a few other like just shitty experiences in the mountains. There's, there's nothing like night mountains. To, to get the heart pumping, you know, like helicopter versus mountain, there can only be one winner, you know, so you, you fuck it up and there's no, there's like you hoist to a boat, you don't like the boat, you back away, problem solved, right? The boat thrashes itself to bits, great. You don't like the mountain, unlucky, there's his big brother just over there waiting to bite you in the ass too and you're like, oh God. So, yeah, I, I was noticed this, this kind of hyperactivity or hypo where I just, couldn't be asked with anything all day long and it was starting to really get on my wife's nerves um and i couldn't explain anything to her and then my buddy you know shared his experiences which made me think twice which made me go and get a diagnosis and then realize that oh shit actually the, the, there's a lot going on here and um it's much, much better. Even in the first few sessions with the guy, you, once you can put a name to something, 
it, it loses its uh, potency, I think. You, you can go, okay, honey, I am overreacting today, and I know I am, and it's for this reason. Bear with me. We'll, it will get better, as opposed to what's wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm absolutely fine. Well, you don't see myself. Of course I'm yourself. You're not yourself. And like having a, a framework to deal with things like definitely has dialed it down to manageable levels. So, you know, I'm still working through some stuff, but it feels much, much healthier than, than it did six months ago, even. Well, I mean, listen to, you know, kind of unpack the whole story and you take obviously the trauma itself, you know, the inability to save, which I had over and over again. I've had many guests kind of talk about this too. You know, it's not the people that die. It's the impact of that death on that person's loved ones that stays with you. The shrieks, you know, the, the looks. Um, those are the ones I remember. I don't remember the corpses, really, to be honest. Um, then you have, you know, the organizational stress. So, you know, over and over again, you have that element. Then you t- think about being forced out and there's that loss of tribe, that loss of identity. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, the problem with the mental health thing is people seem to want to say it's a thing. It's just one thing. It's like this whole COVID thing. It's a multitude of things. And COVID is just one of them that's holding a mirror to all the other things that are making people die. Um, but, you know, so it's it's really powerful to hear that. And then obviously sleep deprivation, as you said, you're working yeah. nights over and over again. So now you have this, this perfect storm of, you know, um, elements that are contributing towards, you know, mental health challenges. So, so with the, the therapy you're doing, is it EMDR? Is it talk therapy? Are there any certain types of things that you found work better for you? Yeah, we, we've, um, because everything's kind of virtual at the moment, um, we've gone with this tapping protocol. Uh, so you basically write the statement of what's bothering you and it's kind of seven things that are negative about that and seven things that are, are positive about it. And you say them out loud and you tap it certain points around your, your head and face, the kind of acupuncture points. And um, it feels completely ridiculous. And like finding somewhere um, like secret to do it rather than you'd be like tapping your face on the bus, <laughs> like a, a, a mental case. Uh, but it's it's helping. And I guess the idea is, is you, you, you change those um, negative feelings into positive ones just by reinforcing it with this, this tapping protocol. So, so far, so good. But as I say, I don't think I was terribly far down the, the line. I think it's something that, that needed addressing. I think I could have quite easily not addressed it, let it slip through the cracks and ended up another statistic of, you know, well, we got divorced because I'm working away and, you know, we've changed without ever realizing of like, well, why have you changed? What, what did go wrong? What, what is different? And it's so hard, I think, sometimes to check in with yourself and, and, and have that tough talk and be honest of like, things are not the same. Why are they not the same? You know, I, I find myself, I'd, I'd be on the streets of, of Vancouver, just not wanting, like I couldn't deal with crowds anymore. And it's like this, this is not how I used to be. What is, what's moved on, you know? And then you've kind of got to be honest and go back and unpack it. And I'm not a particularly reflective person normally, you know, I, I, I try to live in the moment and I think, like a lot of the the, the good things that um, you know uh, the, the foundation training that you've talked about, the stuff with Wim Hof, the breathing, 
I think when you surf in the UK, it comes naturally. You're cold water immersed. Um, you, you, you're fit and healthy to be able to pound in that. The breathing comes along. You know, it's the, the, the fittest, fittest I ever was, was just surfing and not really doing anything else. But that's a long time ago when I used to be able to get in every day and, and be on the beach and that, that out in nature and that well-being. It's actually gone away. You know, that's 10 years ago since, since that was a thing. But you just don't notice time moves on and it's like shit all these things i was doing naturally have gone but i haven't replaced them with anything i'm not breathing i'm not taking time out to to just appreciate what i've got i'm not pushing my body i'm not working on flexibility and and core and all these things just start breaking you back down and i, I think your analogy in your book about that bucket with the holes punched in it is is the perfect analogy it really is it isn't the bottle filling up with stress it's the bucket draining out of your well-being and there's lots you can do to top it up but sometimes you don't notice and that bucket's just draining all the time and uh you know a, a few other things happened this year I, like as i was saying my neck and shoulder have been bad and they got chronically bad i was i was going to physio i was doing some massage i was doing some stretching but it wasn't making any uh, headway into it and uh, we went surfing and I was like an old man in fact I was worse than old man there's old men out surfing me you know like oh look at the 70 year old ripping ripping by me and it was such a kick in the balls of like here's the thing that I would say I love the most like the, the thing I really love to do and it was a fucking miserable weekend of not being able to do it and just been in solid pain when I got out of the water and it's like something has to change at this point. And um, I did. I, I discovered a few other things. And like that's actually what led me to foundation surfing because or foundation training because um, I felt I can't I can't go on like this. I can't have another weekend of, of surfing the, the the precious times and feel like this. So I started looking for, okay, what else can I do to, to improve my lot in life? You know, these things aren't working. What else can I do? And I came across it that way. And again, very helpful for me was my my Sartek buddy that was going through a similar journey. He's younger than me, healthier, but he's had some setbacks recently. And and he kind of, you know, took control and, and moved things forward. And it was it was a powerful um, gesture. And it's like, yeah, okay, that this is the way. Um, I've got to get out of this victim mentality. And I think it's easy to get yourself there and sometimes hard to get out. You know, it's like, well, if you if you go to Veterans Affairs and they'll help you, but of course, everything there's so many hoops to jump through. So you start jumping through these hoops, but you start to believe you're that person of like, you know, they always say, well, well, describe these pains on your worst day, and slowly it erodes your soul, and slowly you're turning into this victim of like, oh yes, please, sir, I'd like some money because everything hurts so much and I can't do anything, and it's like, fuck it, I'm 48. I'm not that unhealthy, you know, like I should have a long, healthy life ahead of me of things that I enjoy. And if you're not careful, you can just like let the mental side things go and, and suddenly you're a victim. Suddenly you're alienating everyone around you and your um your your structure's gone. You know, that that network of friends and family, they're gonna help you. You've alienated them. You've got rid of them, and it, it's a slippery slope from there on out. You know, it's it, you're, you're heading to a dark place. So it's it's a real fine line with some of this. Is like you've, you've got to accept that okay, some things hurt. I'm not quite where I was, but I'm going to be positive and, and and try and move this forward rather than just 
allow it to fester. And, and that was really what pushed me with the, the PTSD stuff was like, I honestly didn't think I had the issue, but I could also recognize that there were some changes to my personality that had perhaps been there longer than I thought and weren't going away on their own. And I wasn't enjoying the person I was turning into. So you've got a choice. Absolutely. Well, and you talk about the pain too, whether it's the colitis or the neck pain or, you know, and that's another area um, that contributes to mental ill health. You know, you, you, you were this young fit, you know, military member, police fire, whatever. And then now you're, as I was, you know, lying on a bed and you can't even sit up without being in agony. You can't pick up your child. You can't, you know, make love to your wife. You can't do any of that stuff. You just, it's humbled. Yeah. It, it destroys you. But, and then you said as well, which I think is very, very true, and I see this a lot. One of the ways out is to be like, yeah, put your hands up. Yeah, my back's fucked. You know, I'm, I'm going to go out on medical. But you kind of have to play the part then. You hear of people literally tailing people to make sure that they're not living their good life anymore. Otherwise, they'll, they'll turn around and say, you know, you were lying. This is fraudulent. So then it stops anyone from seeking help. You know, I've seen this even with some of my friends that kind of caught in this, you know, rock and a hard place. And so for me, I had both knees, you know, when I had to have meniscus, you know, snipped on both knees and my back. My back, I ended up healing on my own with foundation training and Cairo. But I was like, no, I don't want any of your fucking money. You know, I'm just going to retire normally because my health is more important to me. And yes, I've got scars from my service, of course, mentally and physically, but I got this, you know, I'll be all right. But there, there is that, as you said, that real danger of being defined by whatever your disease your disability your mental health prognosis versus realizing okay this is real absolutely this is what i'm facing now but there are veterans like mark ormrod who had two legs and one arm blown off that are competing in the invictus games and and competing in jujitsu so you know my colitis you know depression whatever I can overcome that. It doesn't define me. It's there, it's real, but it does not define me. Absolutely, yeah. And in my house, I don't have to look much further than my wife because her autoimmune disease affects her eyes. So she loses control of an eye and gets double vision. She still snowboards. She still mountain bikes. So on those days that you need to man up a bit, it's like, well, she's coping. <laughs> so maybe maybe I need to just you know, get my big boy pants on here and, and, and get out there and do it. But yeah, there was a real moment this year where the lure of the victim became quite strong. And it's like, oh, you know what? What I could do is just say, this has all got too much. And they'll, they'll, just, they'll just give me money and, and, and I can retrain. And, and Janine said, and do fucking what? What, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, I don't know, you know, I sit on the couch a bit, smoke a bit of dope, which is like, hard no, absolutely not. I'm <laughs> like, well, ride my bike, go snowboard. She's like, no, absolutely not. You tell me what it is you're moving on to and we can talk. And it's like, uh, I still like the, the, you know, I still enjoy aspects of the life. You know, I, I don't want to be flying forever, but it's hard to move away from it. It's, it's what I've done. And what I enjoy and I'm clearly not over all that search and rescue and everything else. Cause the first thing I did when I left was join ski patrol. So it's like, I've, I've not been able to leave it alone yet. Maybe one day I'll be able to, to walk away from it, but um, not just yet. Well, I think that's the other thing that I see with 
the transition and it could be retirement, injury, being fired, even promoting from, you know, the, the boots on the ground to pushing papers in an office. But people struggle again with that identity. And I think what I've seen people who successfully transition more often than not, it's the same purpose. They might go from Navy SEAL to starting a nonprofit. It might go from, you know, like Tom Hewitt, you know, a professional surfer who's a good person who ends up mentoring kids in South Africa and getting them off the street, yeah. you know, whatever it is. But that purpose of doing good, that altruistic element that sent us into the profession in the first place is carried on. Now, as you said, you can't be a firefighter forever. You can't be a pilot forever. There's a certain point where our body will fail us or, you know, we just realize we put enough time in. But I think that's the key, though, is finding whatever that next step looks like and it might be writing but it's still doing something good in the world i think that's what allows us to transition from uniform to uniform without feeling like we've lost that identity uh, absolutely there was um there was a change in the RAF pension uh when i was still in and um at the time um you got a pension paid out if you did a full service um Oh, what do they call it? Permanent commission, I think it was. So a, a full term was 16 years, basically. Um, and then you start with this small pension. Cool. Uh, in Canada, you get 50% of your pay if you stick it out for 25 years. And they're just doing some changes now. But the change to the RAF pension was if you stay in to 55, like you get a small pension. Then at 65, you get this, this really good pension. Oh wow! Would you like to to swap over? I was given the choice, so I did the calculation. Just like, uh, no thanks. This is bullshit. I'll I'll have you know money in the hand, but everyone that joined after me didn't get this choice. And later on, I was chatting to someone, and they said, "Well, yeah, you know why they did it, right?" It's like, no. It's like, yeah, statistically, if you stay in the forces till you're 55, you're dead in the next five to ten years, and it. It, it, again, everything that's happened to me and the, 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 the friends around me and their experiences and stuff, it, it resonates. It's that loss of purpose, I think. Um, I'd say for men, but there's a lot of women in these um, circumstances too. So I'm, I'm sure it goes for them too. But I, I think men get hit hard by it. And that loss of purpose, if you transition out and don't have the next thing, it is fairly catastrophic for some people, I think. You know, it's, it, it's that... Uh, um, oh, what was the film? Uh, Shawshank Redemption. You know, it's 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 red in the halfway house, scratching his name on the side because like he's been there all his life. And if you join the military at 16, 17, stay till you're 55, that's that's hard. You've not got long to kind of replace that with something equally meaningful. It's it's rough on people. So I always said I was going to get out early and, and no big deal, but. When I tried to get out at 38, Janine told me I couldn't just be a surf bum. So here I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the other purpose that a lot of people don't realize is available to them is just purely addressing the injuries mentally and physically that we have, whether it's neck injuries from, you know, a night vision helmet, whether it's, you know, whatever it is. And, and with foundation training, with, you know, the iron neck, which is one of the things I want to, want to bring the founder of that on, you know, all these tools and, and, and great teachers and, you know, like you said, breathing practices and cold, you know, ice therapy and all these things are fixing people. Not, you know, you said about 
I never used to be this person and we're never going to be the person we used to be because you and I have seen and done stuff that we can't unsee and undo and we wouldn't. So the goal is to make us a, a awesome version of who we are now. And those experiences can make us an incredible human being. We've been through, you know, a crucible and come out the other side, but there's a cost to that. So for me, the purpose has also been, all right, what hurts? What's damaged? You know, like I'm still a little foggy headed now. I've been, you know, basically sworn off drink for almost two months now. Um, I'm about to go to a four day rock festival. So this might be the last time I say that. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, than me, James. I've, I've not been able to do that yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's been the longest dinner I've had in a long time, but, um, but yeah, but you know, the foundation training, I've been doing meditation in the morning. I've been doing foundation pretty much every single day because I have baggage that I have to fix and not even fix like it's going to be with me forever but there are things I can do to stop it hurting things I can do to keep me away from meds away from surgeons and I think that's the other purpose is when you get out understanding that that job was trying to kill you almost everyone listening our job is trying to kill us so how do I create the healthiest version of myself once I've transitioned out and that should be one of my purposes along with my desire to help others because you help others by being healthy yourself Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was something that came out of, um, the, uh, the experiences with colitis was the whole, you can't pour from an empty cup and it, it's true. And since then I've put myself first is the wrong way, but I've found ways of carving out more time for me. Whereas before I'd just be go, 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 give, give, give. And like, we've got to do this harder, faster, like stronger, now it's like I'm off for a nap, you know. I've got my stretchy band with me. I'm going to be in the back room stretching. I'm going to be upstairs doing deep breathing, whatever it's it's going to be. Uh, but carving out that time for me because you neglect it. We all neglect it. And comes a day that yeah, you're right. Like exactly what you you said. You've got a choice. You can be the best version of what's left now, or you can just give the fuck up and. I don't think any of us have that mentality, but, you know, enough mental unwellness, physical unwellness, take away the support structure, not understand where to turn. It can bring strong people down pretty fast. And it was something it was, you know, you look back and realize it's not just one thing. It's just a, a whole lifetime of things um, chipping away you know a friend of mine used to describe it as being uh, nibbled to death by the trivia ducks you know and, and and it's a version of that that's happened to your health you know it's like sure sometimes we're involved in one big incident like an explosion went off near you got hit by a truck you you had the catastrophic fall but more often than not it's the the stupid little things like you said lifting a guy into the back of the van which you've done before but that one day the the mechanics were off. You probably hadn't slept that well. You were slightly out of shape. And that's that's the trigger. That stupid fucking thing. You know, my my back used to go, my shoulders used to go, and it's like, I've just got to accept this is where I'm at. If you want to be able to do the other things, now I've got to put the time in for myself. I've, I've got to. I can't just ignore it anymore. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Dave, we've been chatting for almost three hours, so I'm going to transition oh, some Sorry. closer questions. No, don't apologize. It's been amazing. Like, this is what I love about these, con you know, conversations. I say this a lot yeah. on mic. Like, when you're present and you, ha you, you know, you're storytelling and you're listening and, and you're, you know, sharing parallel careers. I mean, this is, this is 
three hours of solid gold. It really is. So sure. Um, well, you, you, you're too kind to me. It's just me rambling on for <laughs> three hours and you not stopping me. So <laughs> I disagree. Um, so the first closing question I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend or books? It can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated. Sure. Um, if you're in the military and you think you're going mental um, with what's going on around you, there's a book called On the Psychology of Military Incompetence. Um, it's a little bit dated now, but it's very interesting. It was probably uh, someone who was bitter about leaving the British Army, but uh, it, it's a very interesting study on um, on incompetence at the upper echelons. And he draws a really great parallel in that between physical bravery and um, uh, emotional bravery. Uh, and basically that a lot of people in the forces go up the chain because they're, they're willing to charge down a, an enemy machine gun nest and, you know, take their trousers off and run screaming at the enemy, but they can't say no to the upper echelons. They, they don't have that emotional courage to, uh, to turn things down, to do the right thing, to be there for their people. And it's, it's a pretty interesting read. Um, for uh, pure entertainment, though, I would recommend uh, Barbarian Life by William Finnegan. Uh, that's a really good book. It's about surfing, but kind of not about surfing. It, it, it's basically this guy's life um, right from childhood through to where he is now. And if you've ever been passionate about anything, it, it resonates, you know, his, his particular passion is surfing, but you could substitute it for anything, you know, and, and how you flight to it when you're young, how uh, pressures as you get older take you away from it and how he finally reconnected with it kind of later on in life. And it, it's just a really interesting read and a, a very well-written book. So uh, that, that's a book that I've picked up again and again, very interesting. Beautiful. Well, I was just checking my phone. I'm going to show you a picture there. I don't know if you can see it. That is the book you're talking about. A friend of mine oh, who's yeah. on the show, there you go. Jared yeah. Sergi, who's an American firefighter, had posted this three days ago. So when you said that, I'm like, I've never seen that book before, but the universe is funny like that. So yeah, there right? we go. It must be a good book. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, then the next question, same same kind of concept, but with a military, uh, oh my goodness, with a movie or a documentary and or a documentary. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this as well. I mean, again, pure entertainment. Like, if, if I need to calm down, just, like, have a, a, a feel-good moment, um, hard to beat the big Lebowski for me personally. I, I still aspire to be uh, the dude. Um, you know, his, his character is, uh, is pretty phenomenal. So that always makes me uh, feel pretty relaxed and, and, and pretty good about myself. It's a movie about absolutely fuck all, which kind of describes my entire life you know surfing <laughs> is the most pointless sport everything i do is pointless but it's all good um documentary i couldn't think of a good one but uh, the the best thing i've watched about the second iraq war would be generation kill i know you had one of the actors on there um interviewing the the, the guy that's the part-time fireman yes um that that was that that was a really good series and um uh was probably the most realistic thing that i've watched about it they, they kind of really get the um the characters right we were co-located with the um u.s marine corps for a lot of the time that i was over there um so the stuff that they they kind of do really quite resonates with me so i, I think that's a good look at what that war was like it was a, a very strange 
war insofar as there wasn't a lot of fighting. There was just a lot of strange goings on, you know. So um, pretty pretty good. If you haven't watched it, I'd, I'd recommend that series. Rudy Reyes is um, a Marine Recon who's like a fitness guru. He's conservationist, but he's just been over. Uh, are you aware of the show SAS Who Dares Wins? The, uh, yeah. I think he just yeah. did the... I'm the Australian one, I think, with some of those guys. Um, so he's oh, just cool. come back. So I'm hopefully getting Rudy on at some point too. So that'd oh, be nice. an interesting yeah. perspective on Generation Kill and and you know yeah, actually absolutely. being there for real. Yeah, uh, the the book's quite good as well. Uh, the actual book, Generation Kill, but I think the series is is better. It, it kind of gives you a flavor of what it was like. Now I've, I'm probably getting the actor wrong. Is it Jeff Daniels in Big Lebowski? Yes. Yeah. So he's also a foundation training student. Is that right? Fun fact. Yeah. There we go. He's he's awesome. Well, it was his uh, sweater that he wore and his own uh, jelly shoes that he wears in that uh, that outfit. So, like, the guy's got style. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of awesome humans, next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? I, I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, it'd be great if you could get William, but I don't know uh, how he would feel about it, but you never know. Um, I would say some of the men and women from the SARTEC community, uh, so the search and rescue technicians, the, the, the men and women in orange here, um, I've got some reservations about the way things were set up for search and rescue here, but not those people. They, they're, they're true as you described, tactical athletes, um, they're some of the most impressive humans I've ever come across. The special forces without the, the guns, basically. So uh, probably a couple of people that, uh, that I could reach out to there that would be, they've all got fascinating stories. They, they do some incredible stuff. Brilliant. They really do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, you know, William would be an amazing guest and or Harry. Um, yeah. But yeah, but also, yeah, whoever's whoever's at the tip of the spear or the edge of the line would be a, an amazing perspective. Yeah. So some of the interviews that I've, I've listened to with you, with your guys, I think uh, I think the Sartec community would be would be well to be represented. And like, I've, I've got a few friends here that I um, I don't want to throw them under the bus because I've not had a chance to talk to them about it. So I could give you all these names and you might not be able to get hold of them. <laughs> uh, but yeah, certainly, uh, certainly a couple of my friends would be be good well one guy i see fairly regularly brandon shedderer um i'll mention it to him because uh he's he's quite the guy um quick quick um closing story for you if you will but we went to uh, uh, a rescue for some lobster fishermen in um uh, nova scotia and he was one of the sartex and long story short but uh on dumping day uh they threw all their pots overboard and uh in two separate incidents uh fishermen had been wrapped up in the pots and dragged underneath so we're on our way uh, the hercules is on the way they parachute two guys into one incident we go to the the other incident and there's just two funny bits that i always remember one is like we put brandon and his teammate down um to the boat and they get the fishermen they check them out and they're, they're doing okay but they, they're going to need a lift to hospital so he takes him out onto the the bow of this deck and it's pitching and, and bucking and the helicopter's coming in and I'm bucket and weaving, trying to stay with this 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 boat. And he sees the hug coming and he turns around and he goes, I'm not going. And Brandon's a big guy, CrossFit guy. He's like, Yes, you fucking are. And <laughs> hugged him and like hooked him up. So like you had to forcibly remove that guy for for a rescue. Uh, and then we went to the 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 other incident where the other two Sartex had, had uh, parachuted in. 
and uh buddy is like 300 pounds and uh the way the boat worked is like we couldn't uh, we couldn't get them into the cabin we had to drop them on the bow and then they basically shimmed along the side of the boat like american ninja but there was just no way the mechanics of the hoist could work uh, so they got this coast guard vessel alongside and they were going to transfer him over first person over is brandon he's got one foot on the boat one foot on the coast guard and the two boats start separating and it's like jean-claude van damme Ooh, those trucks yeah. <laughs> yeah and he just like he Forced them back together as Thighmaster 3000. And he, he, he held those boats together with sheer will, I think. So uh, he, he'd be a good guy to get on. He's got some, he'd have some good stories. So. Absolutely. Well, I've never heard of anyone doing ocean rescue skydiving into the incident. Mm-hmm. So just quickly, so you're in Hercules. So talk to me about that. Yeah, the, the Sartek. So um, uh, on the squadron I was at, or most squadrons within Canada will have a fixed wing as well as a, a rotary wing. And the uh, Sartex will just go with whoever's going to be fastest or most suitable. So that gives them a skydive capability. Basically, they'll they'll parachute in. So, um, yeah, they actually parachuted into the ocean and swam to the boat. Uh, the, the, the first guy landed alongside what he thought was the, the target vessel. And uh, he looks up at the fisherman and nods at him and the fisherman nods back and he gathers all his kit and he looks back up and the boat's fucked off because it wasn't him. <laughs> <laughs> and this guy's like, oh, guy parachuted into the ocean. No, no big deal. He thought so it was fishing like, game. He's like, fuck this, I'm yeah. out of here. These are all too small. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, the, these guys can actually be parachuted in and like be self-sufficient for a few days until you get a, a helicopter there to extract them. So it's like, like I say, they've, they've got some interesting stories. There's, there's some big incidents that they go to. I've never heard of that before. So one of, yeah. the, one of the other things I've learned today. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure people know you know, where to find you if they want to reach out. What do you do to decompress these days? You mentioned surfing before. Yeah, I would love to say I'm a full-time surfer. I'm not. Like, uh, I, I, I still go, uh, but not nearly as much as I'd want to. So um, I'm pretty lucky where we live. I've got a huge uh, mountain bike network um, right by my doorstep uh, into the Cumberland Forest. So uh, that's been pretty good for the soul, that kind of forest bathing and um uh, and getting out and, and doing something that's, that's similar to surfing, but a little different and more expensive. Um, and we're, we're also fairly close to a mountain, so we've got a, a ski resort not too far away. So I, I snowboard and ski patrol up there. Um, go to Pilates sometimes with my wife. She's a Pilates instructor. And, and, and if not, I, I think the banner is just get outside. I, I try and spend my time outdoors. I've always enjoyed it. I do a bit of trail building now and, and that kind of thing. It's just nice to be in that environment. It's it, it's a peaceful way to be, be it in the ocean, up a mountain, in the forest. It's a great way to decompress, for sure. Yeah, Beautiful. Well, I'm sure people are fascinated. I mean, we've talked about so many different things and so many different countries in this conversation. So if people want to learn more about you or follow you or reach out to you, where are the best places online? Sure. I think I'm surfing Sawboy on Instagram. Um it's probably about it, really. Uh, you found me on LinkedIn, so well done. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I think it said he prefers to be followed. I'm like, well, I don't care what he prefers. I'm connecting, so there we go. <laughs> yeah, sure. There you go. Yeah, so it's all good. Um, yeah, I, I've never thought of myself of, of, of that way, but you realize that, uh, and again, you know, blow sunshine up your ass, but I, I think the podcast is such a noble pursuit that it does connect 
people like that. You know, I was out riding my bike before and I thought it'd be great. We should get, we should get a bunch of these people together and like, you know, surf, mountain bike, hang out, share these stories. You know, it's, it's what they're for. So yeah, if anyone wants to talk through stuff, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to, to discuss things, um, share my journey and, and, and what I went through. Cause I think no one should suffer. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you sharing the story. I want to say quickly thank you to John Hudson as well for kind of connecting some of the dots yeah. for us. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, as I say to so many people, I thank you so much for telling your story. And I understand that, you know, sometimes when, when we take people through some of these paths, whether it's, you know, childhood or traumatic events or whatever it is, you know, there's a, there's a cost of that too. You're revisiting some of the things that we're kind of trying to forget. Um, but the power of, telling those stories i know resonates to so many people i see i don't see i think i see a fraction of the messages that the guest usually gets but you know i see the the impact of it so you know it's been three hours of awesome conversation but just thank you so much for basically having the courage to tell your real story and uh, also giving us some prince william stories that was kind of (laughs) cool no thanks james and thanks for the opportunity i've been tight-lipped most of my life and then you realize that there's a power to to actually share some of these things and you know if it helps someone else then it's worth it